Thanks for taking the time to download this BBC Radio 5 Live podcast. To search for other podcasts you might like, click bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live, where you'll also find our terms of use. Have we started? Started so you'll finish. What are we starting with? Saturday links. Saturday links. Saturday links. Two, three, four. Saturday links. Oh yes, thank you, mother. Saturday links. Oh yes, thank you, mother. Can we have a big band? Don't put your daughter on the stage, Mrs. Worthington. Full orchestral or big band? I think it's a big band tune. Saturday links. Umpar band. Yeah, or a kind of a brassed off kind of band. Yeah. Well, that's a bit umpar, isn't it? Well, umpar implies German Munich, a Munich (laughs) hall. And the Munich Beer Hall. I'm sure that I'm sure that Umpar doesn't actually come from Germany. It's not like das das Umpar music, <laughs> is it? A little bit of Umpar. Umpar, Umpar, Umpar. That's how it goes. Umpar, Umpar. Everyone knows Umpar, Umpar. When you are near, Umpar, loud and clear. I think we need to probably play that a little bit later. And what is what is that from called? Oliver. But is it called the Umpar song? Uh, I guess it well it has to be, doesn't it? I I don't know. It's you know. But I'm sure umpapa wasn't invented by the Germans. No, and I'm sure the word umpa is not a German word. It sounds like a British word. Well, it sounds like a German word for grandfather, doesn't it? <laughs> das umpa. Das, das umpa vater. Die, die kids umpa vater. That <laughs> that sounds like something completely different. Anyway, I think <laughs> let's just stick with big bad then, shall we? Das umpa vater. Yes. Thing is, m- an awful lot of ich bin German. You can just ein Umpervater. Now, we've only been going a few minutes, and already you've moved the conversation on to presidents. So you can now stop it. Okay. We have been told. We have been told. In fact, for this podcast, I yes. am wearing a T-shirt, but, which I'm not allowed to wear once the webcam goes live. Yes, you are, and I'm not even allowed to say why that. Except, <laughs> is he? Is he? Is it literally? Like he's not even allowed to say why he's not allowed to wear the T-shirt. That is apparently. It's correct. I think Robin, Robin's jackboot of oppression has been specially yeah. tailored. He's polished it, hasn't he? He's definitely he's yeah. polished his jackboot jack of oppression. <laughs> and he's pushing it down on my head. Anyway. But the thing is, when we're live, he can't stop me. I could, I could take... You could suddenly take strip my off. off. But then uh, I, I was the other week when it was um, Christmas, I was wearing a Karl Marx T-shirt. That's a good point. How, how can he wear a Karl Marx T-shirt and I can't wear my... Karl Marx is not quite so much in the news, is what Robin says. He has dropped off the headlines has recently, he? hasn't he? Have you not noticed? No. Has he, is he not, he's not in the news right now. Anyway. Is he still in the charts? Um, Karl Marx sings the magic of Umpar. <laughs> Why is that funny? Why is... Karl Marx sing a little birdie? It's a Monty Python sketch. Yeah, yeah. Very good. 1970. But the thing is, too old Ben, as we have found it, reciting Monty Python sketches. Not funny. Not, not funny, funny. Not clever. Not Get funny, on with the Saturday not links. Funny. Here we candid, go. Candid. <clears throat> could be. Like it. Hello and welcome to Kermit and May's Film Review, the weekend edition on BBC Radio 5 Live. In the next hour, we'll be counting down the UK box office top ten. I'll be reviewing the week's new films and you, Simon, will be talking to our special guest. Yes, I will be because he's Matthew McConaughey. He's on the show talking about his new film Sing and his other new film, which is called Gold. Always believe in your soul. You sort of dropped the ball on that joke. No, I didn't. I was I was anticipating it and then okay. b- putting a little bit of irony in the, in the final. Okay, what you should do is just do that link again. I think I was... No, no, but go on. No, go on. Just once more. Go from Yes, Matthew McConaughey. Yes, Matthew McConaughey is on the show talking about his new film Sing and his other new film Gold. Gold. Always believe in your soul. 
It's a recorded programme, so please don't waste your time and money by sending texts because we're not here to read them. So, on with the show, as they say on The Muppets. Well, that was the top ten. Now let's review something or other. It's Cabot and Mayo's film review at the weekend. Mark's reviews plus my conversation with Matthew McConaughey coming up after the latest Five Live News. It's very good. Welcome back to the weekend edit of Kermit and Mayo's film review on BBC Radio 5 Live. There's a bunch of reviews coming up in the next half hour, but remember, sorry. <laughs> really tight. There's a bunch of reviews coming up in the next half hour, but anything can happen in the next half hour. But remember not to text us because it's a recorded show. Matthew McConaughey provides the voice of Buster Moon in the new animation Sing, and we'll hear from him after this clip. This has been a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live. Thanks for listening. Back on Friday from 2 o'clock, Danny Boyle, live in the studio. Oh, Danny Boyle. Oh, yeah. Well, that was pretty good. Your your production uh, was... It was great. Very produced. It was. Uh, now, where are we going? I've got some special things here. From a thing. Uh, you got a message from the Umpafata. <laughs> it's a lot Uber Gruppenführer. <laughs> That's Robin. OK. Right. Should we start? Yes. Oi, Mark. Oi, Simon. What's up with your bad face and your bad self? <laughs> when you go and see, you know, Sing, Sing, which is the Matthew McConaughey film. Well, it's it's the Garth Jennings film that Matthew McConaughey is in. Well, he's, yeah. his voice is in it. Taron Egerton plays mm-hmm. a gorilla. He does, and he comes from a crime family. All of whom talk like this. They do. Oi, oi, and it's it's actually very funny. And Taron Egerton is mm. very funny. That whole crime family thing is very <laughs> but they are all doing this they are so I'm thinking is this Idris or not and it's not Idris at all it's other people who sound like that but Idris Elba has got the most brilliant voice for I mean it, you know it does a number of different things but he is very good at sounding slightly threatening yes I mean it could be because he is well he's not though is he he's, no he's not he's, he's, like, he's completely lovely he's like really really nice and and you know and bouncy and generous and and not like that at all. I did an on as I said many times. Before, I did an on stage with Ray Winston, who again is just un- unbelievably nice. But is all he has to do is speak a little bit like that. You're in my chair. Yeah, jog on, mate. <laughs> jog on. No, get out. I don't think he'd say jog on. Get out. I think that's more of an get out. That's more of a get out. Get out. What are you doing? Why are you? You're sort of whispering. This guy, I told him to get out of my chair once in a Ray Winston voice. You told Ray Winston to get out of your chair. I, told, I didn't realise this was what you were referring to. Yeah, sorry, I thought I told what? you. No, no. So, so what happened? So I'm waiting to interview It's possible. Ray. One of the best things about my lack of memory is you can tell me the same stories loads of times. Right. I can laugh at jokes again. So Go all, on. All the podcast is going, yeah, we have actually heard this one. Okay, about... well, it's not in my memory bank, so... Okay, so here it is. Ray Winston was doing some promo for his, like, a memoir that he'd written. Called Oi. Shut it. <laughs> Cover them up. It wasn't got that. Anyway, it was, it was frankly, not, it wasn't that great. But anyway, he's... Well, the memoir wasn't that Yeah, great. anyway, okay. but he's Ray and he's, you know... so, so he's, he's, he's Ray, yeah. Waiting to get in the studio. And he's in my studio, in my chair, on the phone, doing phone interviews with lesser radio stations. Right. And he's going on and on and on. So I went in and I thought, I'm just going to do this. This is a cleaned up version. I went, okay. <laughs> Oi, Ray. Get out of my flipping chair. Like that. Did you anyway. cuss? Well, only in a Ray Winston style. But you never cuss. But only to Ray Winston. No, but that's funny. that I, mean, I can't imagine you cussing because it's not a thing that you do. Anyway, I just said, oh, you're in my chair. 
And he went, ha, 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 all right. And then he hit me. <laughs> knife right there. And I had to go to hospital. And he went, oh, I'm the daddy now. So uh, I'm looking forward to the show. So am I. Matthew McConaughey's on. Yeah. With a couple of movies to talk about. Mm-hmm. You're going to be reviewing some very fine films. Yes. And I'm already looking forward to Danny Boyle next week. Oh, Danny Boyle. He's never heard that before. I think. I last time he think... came in live was for 127 hours, I think. I think that was the last time he actually. No, but we've interviewed him. him since then, didn't we? Do him for um, Steve Jobs, or no? Was that Michael Fassbender? No. Oh, is it, it really a, that long ago? I think the last time he came in live, which is now being researched by our fine team. Come on, Robin, look lively. I think the, he came in live for 127 hours. We might have done him since, but not live. Okay, we definitely interviewed Kate him. Winslet was for Steve Jobs. That's right. We definitely interviewed him for the for the thriller thing he did with James McAvoy. Trance. We did we did have him, yeah. That was twenty thirteen, I think. Well there we go. So that's so my memory is not, well, when, as, not when, as bad as everybody but was that, thinks. Wasn't that before twenty seventeen? Have we met? But uh, before, wasn't that before wasn't 2013 before twenty seventeen? No, 127 that hours. Was that was before 127 no, hours. It wasn't. Trance was after 127 hours. About you in all things cinematic, Mark. It's ap- well it was after oh. 127 hours. It was that then. Yes. So there we go. Yeah, 2011 was 127 hours, thank you. And 2013 was the film I'm talking about, Trance. So what I'm, I'm right, trying to you're say is wrong. the last time he you came in... You have to change your T-shirt before we go on air in case you... <laughs> the last time he came in on his own live was for 127 hours. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I don't want to even carry on. If you're going to be like this... It's only to Joyce Grenfell, then. You have to stop George. blowing at Edgar. <laughs> well, don't put your finger in. Rob Smith says, I've been listening to your programme since Radio One days, qualifying me, I think, for VLTL status. Very long-term listener. Thank you. And been trying to convince my wife, Kate, of its qualities since I met her in 2003. So it's basically not working. However, she seemed strangely immune to your charms, claiming that she did not want to listen to those two old men wittering on. She also seemed a little bit unhappy when I made our daughter, Ellie, listen to a live show when she was a mere 29 hours old. Ellie's reaction was to instantly fall asleep, which coincidentally was also her first reaction to Test Match Special. (laughs) But last year, a wondrous event. While being forced again to listen to your show, Kate gave a small smile, then... A suppressed giggle, followed by a big laugh. And this led to, after 13 years, finally becoming a regular listener to your programme and podcast. And what was it that made her laugh? I'm afraid I don't know. So a question to the wider congregation. Is there any member who put up a longer resistance before finally succumbing and becoming a member of the church? And to celebrate my wife's first birthday since becoming a regular listener, please can you give Kate a happy what's up? Rob Smith, MA, MPhil, PhD, and winner of the Terminal DVD from when Wittertainment had a weekly competition about 2004. Imagine that when we gave <laughs> stuff away. Day. We're not allowed to do that anymore, are we? I don't know. Well, I don't think no, there's all rules and regulations. Yeah. You have to go on a course. Well, I, can, I, can we give something away now? Okay. People who listen yes. to this podcast. I know what we can give away. We can give away the T-shirt that you're not allowed to wear on air. Well, we can't even do that. Why? Well, first of all, this was a Christmas present. So I can't give it away. And secondly, Robin will say you can't give away anything. He, he just said we have to go on a course. I'll go on a course. No, if you you give away. You've got absolute... I would have to go on the course before I say it. Okay, fine. It's, it's his, He's talking in my head a lot today. It, I, feel like, I feel like I am being crushed under the jackboot of oppression. Keep taking the tablets. 
I feel like I'm in an M. Night Shyamalan film. Who am I? Am I Hedwig, the small lisping child? Or yeah. am I Patricia? Take the stern off. woman. <laughs> Down with your jackboot of oppression. Yeah. Uh, Jeremy and Lester. Uh, rise, ye starflings from your Dear Blue Pill and Red Pill, I would like to let you know about the multiple code violations I witnessed yesterday whilst catching up with Rogue One and ask for some advice on said matter. OK. The main problem is that these were all caused by my cinema-going companion, my CGC. Firstly, my CGC removed their shoes and ah, 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 subsequently ah, ah, ah. placed their feet on the seat of oh. the front. The snack of choice was a chocolate-based product in a silver foil wrapper. Oh, now that sounds like a Kit Kat to me. Yeah, there are there are other chocolate-based products are. in there. I'm just no. guessing. And despite care taken during consumption of said snack, rustling was still evident. Mm-hmm. Finally, there was a moment when, in order to check the nationality of a member of the cast, a mobile phone was used to access no. the Internet Movie Database. Here is my dilemma: my CGC is my wife. She is aware of the Code of Conduct, but is not a member of the church yet, despite the podcast being used generously in the car whenever she is. So should I decline future trips to the cinema with her, knowing the code will be broken, and find a new CGC, or perhaps more controversially, find a new wife? (laughs) Hello to Jason. Love the show, Steve, Jeremy and Lester. Well, I think we all know the answer to the question. Yes, you probably should. (laughs) Joking. (laughs) A little. (laughs) But that is an issue, isn't it? it? It is an issue. It is an issue. And, I mean, as it, as is the issue of there are certain films which if you disagree with your long-term partner on, you actually probably can't be a long-term Grants partner. Divorce. Yeah. But maybe you need to get these things sorted out before you embark yes, on a relationship. Yes, I think there is a list, isn't there? There's a thing where, you know, when people do prenuptial agreements, that you could do, like, here is a list of films which are non-negotiable from both sides. You can kind of whittle them down and, yes. you know, arrive at... So, you know... Do you find Mrs Brown's boys funny? You do? <laughs> Jog on. Green. Does Jeremy get a new CGC? If we assume that Jeremy and his partner should stay together... I think... Let, let's let's, let's assume, assume that... Because I don't want to be the radio show that breaks up marriages. Yes. Love the one you're with, I think, is uh, Crosby, Stills and Nash. No, but that's wrong. That's completely the wrong... Well, that's if you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. The message of that story is... If you're away for a night, hey, yeah, well, you know, is that not mean, right? Hey, oh no, that's wrong, isn't it? No, it's, it's completely. It's like that, that. That you know, what's it called? Um, you know, Zoom or whatever it is. You know, uh, Zoom by Fat Larry's band. Is it Zoom? No, the one in which they all introduce themselves. Oh no, that's the, the floaters. The floaters float on. Yeah, and one of them says, you know, hey, my name is Larry, and I I love a woman who loves everything and, and everybody. everybody. Really? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think I think he just meant cosmically. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love everything. You see those headphones over there? Love, I love that. them as much. It's as like I love it's, you. it's just it's a bit like um you know Ron Burgundy. Isn't it? I love lamp. You know? Oh, good. I love a woman who loves everything and everybody. Yeah. Okay. Jeremy and Lester. What we're saying is probably stay probably stay with your other half. Yeah. But should he get another cinema going companion? I, I mean, the, the the hardline part of me thinks, you know, that if you know that somebody is going to transgress the code, you shouldn't encourage them to go to cinemas. You should get a big flat screen television and allow them to break the code in the comfort of your own so, home. OK, so Jeremy should actually be saying, 
Righty ho. Righty ho. You need to stay at home. He's turning into somebody from Dead's Army. I've got a new cinema game companion who's gorgeous Jemima from next door. <laughs> Is that okay? Keeps her shoes on and eats soft buttered rolls. That's right. Without any crinkly silver paper. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know. Um, Jeremy, I would say forgive. Mm-hmm. Let's say forgive. Forgive. Let's say forgive. Educate. And Activate. Organise. Don't mourn. Organise. On with the show. I'm going to put my jumper on now. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot, didn't I? Hello. You uh, did go. You I'll absolutely went. Captain Mellorin. Captain Mellorin, didn't I? Well, I can't change my clothes now, can I? No, you can't. Anyway, I've been told. I, however, have dressed to impress. Yeah, you've, you. well, you've just dressed like normal, like you're off to a funeral. Yeah, I, I've right. been told that my T-shirt is inappropriate. Uh, and obviously for radio that doesn't really matter, but with the live streaming, I'm now holding my jumper in front of my... Oh, look, it slipped. I'm, OK, I'll just... I'll wait for Mark to go on a bit, and then I'll put my jumper on, all right? Fine, OK. So OK. <laughs> the editor just said, I'm sure you won't have to wait long. In that case, I'm going to keep all my answers short <laughs> so that you can't go and change. Anyway, look, here's... Back to basics, as someone once said. Michael Davis. Who once said that? John Major. Did he? Back to basics. Do you remember that? I don't. What, anyway, what was it in relation let's not, to? Let's okay. not. Oh, fine. I am a long-term listener, says Mike, and introduced your show to my girlfriend, Katie, a few years back. We listen to your podcast on a weekly basis, but for some unknown reason, she still finds it difficult to work out which of you is talking. <laughs> <laughs> After countless, is that Mark or is that Simon? And how, how can you tell the difference with me shouting, Mark's the one that does the reviews, Simon presents the show. The problem still persists, and I have now ceased to answer her questions. <laughs> also, we live in Malaysia, so we cannot watch the live stream to connect the face to the voice. But we sound completely different. I was, And we do separate things. There's the clue. <laughs> exactly. I was thinking, if you could maybe introduce yourselves live on air, Katie could finally make the connection, okay. and I can replay the episode in case of future mix-ups. Fine. Okay. Katie, I'm Mark. And I'm Simon. It's that simple. And if it's not too much trouble, wish her a happy 30th birthday for this Sunday as it would make her leaving the 20s a little bit easier. That's her 20s, not the 1920s. Not the 1920s, <laughs> which is where we're heading. Anyway, this from... Um, now, do you remember... What? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Do you remember when we... I just love the fact that I'm the, the well-behaved one on this show today. I hadn't noticed that. No? OK. Dear Tinkerty and Tonk, says Christina McMahon, this morning I received a text from my partner which said, I'm sat next to Mark Kermode. It would appear that while sitting in the Angel Shopping Centre in Islington in the fashionable part of North London, Mark had asked said partner if he was also waiting for the showing of Triple X as he couldn't get into the cinema. Yes, because it was because basically because of the way they did the national press show, which was really silly, um, I had to go and see it this morning and there was a first screening was at 9.05 in the the, uh, Islington uh, Angel Centre on the extreme screen. So I okay. saw the triple X on the extreme screen. Anyway, unfortunately, he wasn't. So I'm, right. uh, I'm sure fellow members of the church will agree there are a few more exciting texts to receive. 
What in-joke from the Wittertainment repertoire would my partner pick as a reply? Hello to Jason. Love the show, Steve. Or how about some helpful technical advice in the form of film is just a series of still images put together to create the illusion of movement? Alas, with a sinking feeling, I realised none of these scenarios would play out. You see, my partner is not a member of the church. He only knows Mark from the YouTube channel where he can consume the reviews without the waffle. Thanks a lot. (laughs) That's a way to tell us apart so i do the waffle you do the succinct commentary okay there is nothing more frustrating than telling someone to say hello to jason isaacs and getting nowhere more than a perplexed what are you talking about back needless to say no entertainment reference was made and the two parted ways i would like to ask the congregation though if anyone else has experienced the missed opportunity of entertainment or moo as it's known <laughs> would appreciate advice on how others have got over the intense feeling of disappointment and regret related uh, regret-related incidents. Anyway, Christina McMahon, thank you very much. And that was a true thing, and it happened just a few hours ago. It did. And it, the conversation went like this. Are you waiting for the cinema to open too? No. It wasn't that much, was it. It wasn't much of an interaction. No, but it was, I felt that we bonded for that moment. Do you remember we had a conversation last week uh, due to some listener correspondence, which is largely inspired by the fact that they were young. They just had a, a baby, and they didn't want to have babysitters, so they went on alternate nights to go and see the movie. I do remember. They it was a consecu- yeah, exactly, yeah. consecutive night. One of them would go see it, the other one would go and see it, and then there was whether they would then discuss it when the second one came home, exactly. as if they'd both gone exactly. together. Yeah. Well, Katie from Worcester Park says, ever since my husband and I had to cancel our eagerly awaited cinema trip to see The Hobbit back in 2012 due to the early arrival of our firstborn son, we two have struggled to go to the cinema together and always take turns to see films alone. Babysitters make it just too expensive a night. So when I heard about a similar couple who split their cinema trips across two separate nights, which we talked about last week, I felt compelled to share my tip with any other parents doing the same. Ready? Mm -hmm. I secretly go to the evening screenings wearing my pyjamas under my coat. It's dark enough in the auditorium so that no one knows, and it's super comfy. And the best thing (laughs) is... Super comfy. That if I brush my teeth before I leave the house, this is brilliant, and refrain from eating any soft-buttered rolls or anything during the film, I can pretty much crawl straight into bed beside my sleeping husband and avoid any spoiler-tastic conversations. Plus, it maximises sleep time, which is precious when you've got an early-waking four-year-old and a one-year-old. Hope this doesn't sound as a code-breaking violation. Imagine that, though. It's not a code-breaking violation. So you clean your teeth before you go to the cinema, you've got your pyjamas on, then you put... That is... Just my only problem genius. with that is that if that was my case, if I clean my teeth, put my pajamas on, and go on the thing, and I sat in the bed, I would fall asleep. Fair point. And, you know, Katie Fremantle, she's she's, she's that's, that's brilliant. That's so, if you can if you can manage to do that. I mean, I kind of feel that once once you, once you're better tired, that's it. Better tired. Better tired. You know, even, I mean, I imagine you have a, a you know a sort of loose smoking jacket and. And cravat. Cravat, yes. Um, Before the box office top ten, then Matthew McConaughey, by the way, and the two films that he's uh, involved with. Which which are Sing and... Gold. Gold. Cameron from the Springs over there in America. Dear the Wittemen Collective, I took great interest in last week's discussion about the proposed couples consecutive evening cinema dating, or CCECD plan. That sounds like the kind of thing we'd vote to leave. Anyway, (laughs) the plan was to allow parents of young children to attend the cinema on a sort of one-on, one-off shift pattern. The plan is an ingenious way of allowing the great masses of film and sleep-deprived new parents a chance to keep up with all things cinema-related. However, if I could be so bold, I'd like to make an amendment to said plan. The proposal was that partner one would have to remain passive and unresponsive when Mm -hmm. partner two asked how the film was, lest it spoil it for partner two's viewing pleasure the following night. Herein lies the fatal flaw in the system in my view right 
as an amendment, I put forward that if Partner 1 comes back from a truly awful film, they should have special permission to warn Partner 2 ahead of time. For example, if Partner 1 had gone to see Entourage, for example, and then remain impassive and subsequently let Partner 2 innocently go to see the film the next night, this could be judged as an act of unfathomable unkindness. Furthermore, Partner 2 would be quite rightly aggrieved that Partner 1 could have let them leave the house knowing what was in store. Can we agree that an early warning system, EWS, can be used when a true stinker of a film comes along? Yeah, only if it's agreed in advance by both parties because the fact is that sometimes it's not such a bad thing to see an absolute stinker of a film and then have the conversation afterwards. No, it is always, because if you've got... If your cinema going time is very precious, you go, like, every, every what like once a month or once every two months, you can't afford to go for a stinker. You need to make absolutely... No, but it, it doesn't matter how... The fact of the matter is, you're never going to guarantee that you like everything. That's part of the yeah, thing. You can avoid stinkers. Well, it depends what you define as a stinker. There are some people who liked Entourage. There are some people who like Pain and Gain. There are some people who like the Pirates of the Caribbean films. There are some, you know, it, it's... Well, the first one was OK. Yeah, and th- thereby proving my point. Anyway, you quarter past two. Not, oh, fine, you think on we need to get on with the proper 10. stuff. That number 10, why him? Why this? Number nine is The Bye-Bye Man. Now, they didn't press screen this, so I haven't seen it, but I pr- pr- presume that you have some correspondence. Mark Harrison has been to see it. Even by the standards of slapdash horror films of January's past, The Bye-Bye Man <laughs> is dreadful. It makes the devil inside look like the exorcist. The idea of a monster that survives on its own legend might make a decent episode of Doctor Who, but it's squandered here. The film is not scary, and though we often call quiet, quiet, bang, scares cheap, they take at least some skill and timing for filmmakers to pull off, and this one can't even make jumps. Properly. Wow. Okay. That's then. In that case, it's not entirely surprising. Simon Blows has been to see it as well. Right. Uh, That's the entire audience, I presume. If it's gone in at number nine, it's a good job I have an unlimited card, so it didn't feel like I was paying for this film. I think barely mediocre will cover it. It's clearly a Candyman wannabe, but with none of the suspense, shock, gore, or joy of that film. Instead, we get a highly derivative horror light with no scares, predictable plot all the way to the end, not very likeable main characters, and truly poor CGI. There you go. Well, that sounds like the kind of film that you can afford yes, to see okay, if you've got a, a, you know, you can go and see absolutely everything. Yes. But otherwise, you would feel compelled to say to your partner, really, you don't need to do this. Fantastic Beasts is at number eight. I'm, you know, doing very well and. Uh, I do think it's enjoyable. I, I I liked it. I don't think that it's a classic Harry Potter movie, but I do think that there are things in it that are very, very interesting. And the fact is that being back in that world... I mean, it's funny because I remember so clearly that when the Harry Potter movie franchise started, I really wasn't a fan, and I was won over by it. And I now sort of think, oh, actually, I've, you know, I, I'm going to stop talking now so that you can't change. You've got to go on a bit. Keep going. Tell me more. You can't stop me. That's not fair. <laughs> Okay, um, so I think, but I think it's really good, solid family entertainment, and uh, you know, not classic Potter, but you know, in that world that we like returning to. There you see the violence inherent in the system, <laughs> the oppression inherent in the system. Uh, help, help! Come see the oppression inherent in the system. No, oh, what a giveaway! <laughs> number seven, live, uh, live by night, live by night, live by night. We had this conversation last week. Live, live by, by night, night. At number seven. The ben, fu- ben Affleck. The weird thing with with Live by Night is this. It's not by any means a bad film, but what it isn't is a good or a great film. It's a very, very ordinary film. And the problem is that when you consider the subject matter, when you consider the sources, Dennis Lehan, when you consider that it's directed by, written by, starring 
Ben Affleck, who I know he's not everybody's cup of tea, but he is clearly talented. And Argo was a very, very well-directed film. And, you know, I mean, both both Affleck brothers, you know, Gone Baby Gone, you managed to both see now. So when you look at all the talent that's on screen and all the talent that's behind the screen and all the potential this ought to have, the biggest problem with Live By Night is that it's just all right. I, you know, I enjoyed some of it whilst I was watching it, but it never sparked into life. And the problem is, if you have a film that reminds you of Goodfellas and Scarface and The Godfather and all those classic gangster movies, and then it doesn't come anywhere near to capturing that kind of spark, you do end up with a sense of disappointment. It's So it's a shame, but it's fine. And there are some interesting things. Elle Fanning's really terrific. And, uh, you know, great supporting performances all round. But just weirdly inert. I write, says Thomas Banner, still in shock after hearing Mark's incredibly kind review. Oh, okay. So somebody hated it. The film was fake. <clears throat> the film was too clean. The film was too long. The film I did, was too I did say it had a, had a fake feel right from the beginning with the artificial scratch. And yeah. vacuous. I was so okay. disappointed on leaving my generic multiplex, I came over all flappy-handed. Okay. Bang, bang, gun, shot of old car, Ben Affleck stroking an attractive arm, long shot of old car from a helicopter. It's on and on and on it goes. None of it mattered. None of the characters, particularly the female ones, had any great impact, like a long perfume advert with bullet holes. You said in your review it wasn't a good film, but it wasn't a bad film. And on this, I object in the strongest terms. Other points of view are available, and they're and they all shout, "This is a turkey of elephantine proportions." Okay, I disagree, but yes. you know, I can I can tell that you that that's a, something that you're feeling very strongly, and I do, I do think that that sense of anger and disappointment it is amplified by the fact that those people should be making a better film than this. But I would, I still, I don't think it's terrible. I genuinely don't think it's terrible. Simon Humphrey says, whilst this isn't bad, it's definitely Affleck's weakest effort as a director. He Mm -hmm. has crafted a visually sumptuous film, but it's not all that interesting and the pace is uneven. Some potentially good scenes are rushed. Other scenes uh, that aren't that interesting go on forever. Maybe that's his editor's fault rather than his. And given Affleck's record as a director, I'm more inclined to blame his editor on that front. An enjoyable enough piece of fluff whilst it's on, but to me that's a disappointment from the director who made Gone Baby There is a brilliant performance in it from Matthew Mayer, who is the guy who plays the kind of loose cannon, racist Ku Klux Klaner. And I think his performance is really good and really genuinely quite scary. So that's why I don't think the thing is terrible, because I think there are individual elements in it that make it worthwhile. Uh, so that's at number seven. Manchester by the Sea is at number six. I'm staying with the subject of uh, of the Afflecks. So this is the film which has got Casey Affleck, has so many uh, accolades. Uh, we've got the Oscar nominations coming up, I think, on Tuesday, and he's uh, you know tipped for a nomination, if not a win. I think it's the film that demonstrates that this particular writer director has finally kind of found his feet and has demonstrated that he you know, that he can make great films. It's a film about grief and loss and revisiting the past that's told in a kind of, you know, deck of cards way in which all the sort of the time frames are jumbled together. Uh, It has very, very strong performances, particularly uh, from Casey Affleck. I think Michelle Williams' character is underused. Um, I don't say this very often, but I think the film could have been half an hour longer. And we discussed before that there is a central sequence in it which uses Albinoni's Adagio in G minor, which particularly for... 
And I think I think for any audiences, to be honest, but particularly for British audiences, and particularly for British audiences who listen to you on Radio Two. Yeah, but also I've uh, watched Wendy Craig and yeah, watch Wendy Gallipoli Cra- and Flashdance and Rollerball. I mean, Rollerball is the thing that I always associate the, that adagio with because it's used over and over again in Rollerball. Whenever James Khan is walking through his house, deleting the pictures of his wife. They use the the adagio. It's just something which, and as uh, as the director said, he put it there as a temp track, and he was always going to replace it. And then he fell in love with the temp track, and it's a shame because he he because he, because he's a good filmmaker. Um, you know, I had reservations about Margaret. I think you can count on me as a good piece of work. I I think he should have just been stronger and taken the Albinoni out. Uh, Mark Robbins. Uh, Dear Tinkerty and Tonk, what a superb film this is, deeply moving and yet easily passing the sixth laugh test whilst not diminishing in any way the depth of the tragedy presented. I have read some films you watch, some you feel, and I felt all of this from start to finish. The pacing, the interspersing of flashbacks, the timing and the manner of the thing... All were perfect. <laughs> As to Mark's comments on the music during a particular key scene, I yeah. did indeed think of Wendy Craig, but possibly only because I'd heard Mark talking about that earlier. P.S. I am Etty Robbins' dad, whose first ever email to the show you read out a few months ago because she said you were so funny. And we happened to hear this live in my car whilst parking, giving her bragging rights for Evs for winning our bet about who could get read out first. Well, I was so miffed, I had to go into our garden when we got home and trim the hedge for a bit. <laughs> Isn't that just like a perfect way of expressing outrage? I'm going to trim the hedge. In a very British kind of way. I'm so cross. Uh, the reading of this email would, whilst not taking away from my daughter's I was first claim, even things up just for a little. Uh, Mark, thank you. Uh, Steve in London. Our dear and respected doctor usually takes pride in confessing how much he cries at most films. Mm-hmm. How this was not part of his review of this movie is unfathomable. He is usually Dr Blubberface. He's Blubby McBlubberface. <laughs> Personally, which is very good. Personally, I got to the stage where I was blubbing so hard that it was audible and I probably broke the code. I haven't blubbed like that since 12 Years a Slave. How come in this film Mark's response was so muted? Was it simply that this piece of music reminded him of Simon and he <laughs> should have been deep in the drama? Anyway, it seems strange. Response, yes, Manchester what? is film of the year easily. My response wasn't muted. I really like it. I, I said time and time again, it's the thing which demonstrates that Kenneth Lonergan is actually worthy. Did you cry? Oh, yes. OK. But I, I'm I'm sorry that I didn't particularly flag that up. But yes, of course, because it's very moving. But then, you know, I do cry. I, I think... I, I mean, I you know, I shed a couple of tears in La La Land, so... Yeah, and you kind of laugh... You I kind of cry a lot. Yeah. Have lot. you ever cried while we've been on air? Yeah, you know I have. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Have you ever fallen asleep while we've been on air? Yes. Yeah, I know you have. But only briefly. Yeah, that doesn't make it any better. I just fell asleep briefly. But no one noticed. If I hadn't... That's the worst thing, is that no one noticed. You fell asleep on it and no one noticed. That's how you can tell the difference between okay. the two of us. One of those might fall asleep. Um, so, uh, Passengers at number five. We've, you know, we've talked about the controversy about whether or not it deals with the... I, I, I kind of enjoyed it in a goofy, stupid way. Uh, Assassin's Creed at number four. I like the fact that it takes the subject matter of its source seriously. I like the fact that when you interviewed Michael Fassbender, he talked about, you know, going to see the Ubisoft people and wanting to, uh, you know, wanting to do right by their creation. I had a a brief conversation with somebody who I respect very much about video games who said that um, one of the problems with most video video game adaptations is they don't tend to have great central characters because the central character is the player. 
But I did think that Fassbender was an engaging central character and I did I did enjoy the film more than I'd expected. If I fall asleep in this week's programme, it'll mm-hmm. be because of my jumper. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it won't be my fault. Mm-hmm. Just want to mention that. Yep. Uh, Moana's number three. Loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it. Alex Bullock uh, from our Facebook page. Not a review, but delighted to see Moana holding strong and possibly rising. Producer Simon writes, yes, it's up three poptastic places from last week. <laughs> Clearly a lot of repeat viewings and word of mouth. Well-deserved continues a quietly brilliant run of modern Disney classics. Yeah, it's really good. It's really lovely. The animation is beautiful. The story is lovely. The songs are fantastic. And, you know, one of the things I was saying when we were talking about La La Land is that people have talked about La La Land as the return of the musical as if it went away. And as long as there's Disney cartoons, the musical hasn't gone away, you know, ever. I mean, actually, there's been loads of other musicals as well, but... Disney for a long time have been the sort of the most prominent flag bearers for the ongoing musical tradition, and Moana is one of them. Uh, Rogue One, a Star Wars story, is at number two, which I think is well and truly done, done and dusted. But still, you know, Moana three, Rogue One at two is is uh, pretty impressive longevity. But La La Land is, of course, uh, number one. I'll do a bunch of stuff, and okay. then you can do your thing. Sure, but, but don't fall asleep while I'm just going on a bit. Uh, Laura, because it'd be very disrespectful to the uh, mm. to the audience. I, know, I still can't believe you did it. I genuinely can't believe. Well, you did it, it was only in that kind of momentary. I just can't. Oh, oh, I've, I'm back. One of those. Unbelievable. Laura in Brighton. Uh, I'm a huge musical fan, married to a self-confessed musical-hating ogre. You would. So there's clearly a. <laughs> she's living in a fairy tale. She's not, not a husband. She's actually married to an Eating ogre. The beast. <laughs> After three months of post-BFI premiere propaganda, he was finally convinced to see La La Land, thanks in no small part to your show. As the opening scene lit up the whole cinema, a huge grin spread across my face. It was like coming home, because obviously she lives on the freeway, the 110 freeway. Into Los Angeles. <laughs> then it suddenly dawned on me, my home will be his hell. I couldn't have been more wrong, though. He confessed to having a tear-eyed moment at how lovely the world can be after that opening number. The joy didn't stop there and we both adored it. It was all I have ever wanted from a modern movie musical. I left dancing into the street and he whistled his way home. This is unbelievable. A musical convert has been born. So Laurie and Brighton, so this is a true fairy story. So when they went in, he was a huge ogre. And then by the magic of beautiful cinema and storytelling and tunes, he suddenly transformed into a beautiful... Handsome prince. That's fantastic. And, and the other half of Laura Gray in Brighton. I was downstairs in the uh, BBC News Channel offices and uh, uh, bumped into Sophie Rayworth. And Sophie Rayworth said, I have a question for you about La La Land. And I said, yeah, she's seen it. And uh, she said, do you, think, do you think it's a feel-good film? And I said, well, I, I mean, I felt good afterwards, but I think the problem is that people misinterpret exactly yeah, what feel-good... There is good. a sadness in the film. Yeah, and, that's, and I think that that's one of the things that, that makes it... It you know it makes it beautiful is that there is that sort of that poignancy that melancholia that sadness that runs through it and actually it's like the thing about you know beauty is made greater by a flaw that joy is made greater by an underlying sort of thread of sadness and particularly with any film that's flagging up things like Casablanca all the way through you know that there is there there is sadness in the air and that's why it makes the sort of the love affair work and why it makes it sparkle but um i said yeah i, I do think it's a feel-good film and uh she said i just think it's the wrong term for it it's the it's the wrong you know it's saying it's a feel-good film it's not what it and i was i was thinking about that afterwards thinking that's a good point i think it's a feel-good film um and because i came out of it feeling good and i love I think, it but i, I think most people will feel good whilst acknowledging 
the, an underlying sadness. Yes. Yeah. But I thought it was, I mean, I, you know, the, the from that opening number from, you know, Another Day of Sunshine all the way through City of Stars, which ev- even though it reminds me of uh, Mad World from the, the Donnie Darko version of Mad World, I can't get it off my mind. I keep singing it. To and a load of people <clears throat> have said, oh, there's not a memorable song in there. What are you talking about? <laughs> what planet is there? Are there no memorable songs in La La Land? Clementine Van Alexander. Here we yes, go. That really is my name. Student at Bristol University studying Spanish, soon to be BA honours, one time winner of the drama colours at school, currently working in Almira, home to locations used in Lawrence of Arabia, a fistful of dollars, and asterisks at the Olympic Games. Wow. I'm sure you've already had plenty of correspondence about the fan- fantastic La La Land, but hopefully. I have something new to add to the Busby Barclay dance of praise it's already received. I'm an actress who's trying not to become jaded with rejection after rejection and could definitely relate to Mia's many frustrations, especially when she wonders if she's good enough to be a performer. Mm -hmm. When you are told that you are too fat, too thin, too tall, too short, too blonde, not blonde enough, too old, too young, ad infinitum, it can make you either want to give it all up altogether or give you the drive to make you make your own art instead of waiting around for someone else to give you an opportunity. I cannot say how happy I am that this film was shot in glorious Technicolor and not the grey-faced cosmic latte that serious cinema has been so in <laughs> love with. Grey-faced cosmic latte, that's yeah. brilliant. This particularly struck me in the scene where Ryan Gosling is stood in front of a violet sky on a pier, which reminded me of the scarf dance in, in Singing in the Rain. Mm. Also, what a brilliant use of leitmotif with uh, City of Stars, such as when... The City of Stars melody line is used in the background music during the surprise dinner scene, which swelled with the argument and then collapsed into tense silence, which was then overwhelmed by the smoke alarm. Sorry if Simon has to hum over that bit. Well, I think that's okay. I don't think that's too much. Leap Matif, the finest girl you ever want to meet. Do you mean the short, constantly recurring musical phrase? It's lovely. It is such a beautiful... I've got it in my head and I can't get it out. Nidian Job Smith, who's 23, or Job Smith. Would you be Job Smith or Job Smith? I think he's Nidian Job Smith, probably. But that's like, you know, Chelmley Warner, isn't it? Or I popped in and saw La La Land, and just to put my cards on the table, I hate musicals. I don't dislike them. I, I hate actively them. hate them. Mm-hmm. Despite the praise for Frozen and Les Mis, I hated them too. So I regret to say I've been wrong all my life about musicals, and for the first time, I love a musical. Fantastic. And then he, he puts in brackets, say giddily. I love a musical. You went all jazz hands then as well. Days since seeing the film, it's still racing through my brain and I just can't contain that feeling that remains. Simply put, I've gone gaga over Lala, tinkety-tonk and down with the Nazis. <laughs> a recurring leitmotif in the... Uh, finest girl you ever want to meet. Uh, finally, Will Garrett and Battersea. I like La La Land. Uh, one, it's fun and funny. Two, the song's great. Three, the dancing isn't, but that's the point. That's the Four, point. Emma Stone is fab. Five, Ryan Gosling can wear a suit. Mark, <laughs> Mark can feel a butt coming here. But could you please clarify whether it's important for the story to be any good? I've heard all the praise for the music and colour and joy of the film, and I don't disagree. However, I also can't get past the fact that this is a story we've seen a hundred times before. Shouldn't Best Picture winners be telling a story that is somehow inventive or important? No, it's all to do with the way in which you tell the story. Thank you very much indeed. And if, you know, although this isn't the story, if the story that they were telling was boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy sings song, gets girl back again, which was the, the, the story of many... If that was the story they were telling, that's perfectly fine. It's, it ain't what you do, it's the way that you do it. That's what gets results. There's a good tune. We might have to add that to the playlist a little bit later on uh, anyway so we've got lots of reviews still to come for example 
Uh, we're going to be doing uh, Split. We're going to be doing uh, Jackie. We're going to be doing Sing. Yes, and we're going to be doing Sing Plus because it's Matthew McConaughey's new film. And also we're going to be talking about Gold because he's got two films. Uh, one is out next week. Sing is out next week. And well, yeah, I mean, Sing actually previews this weekend. Okay. And then uh, Gold follows in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Anyway, you'll hear from Matthew in just a second. First, a clip from Sing featuring Matthew as Buster Moon, the koala, obviously. <laughs> it starts with the voice of Tori Kelly, who is an elephant named Mina. Think you could sing like that in front of a real audience? I don't know, but I want to try. Good, because <laughs> I want to see it. And that's a clip from Sing. I'm delighted to say that the person that you heard there is Matthew McConaughey, and although he's playing a koala bear, though that probably wasn't immediately obvious from the clip. Matthew, hello, how are you, sir? I'm very well, good morning. It's very good to have you on the show. So, uh, and I spent the whole movie thinking. Did, is the koala bear a little bit you as well? So it's a it's a like a it's a McConaughey bear, really. There's a McConaughey bear. Yeah. Is that? <laughs> well, um, I don't know. I put I put. Uh, he's that got that wonderful delusional optimism. <laughs> you know, he's going to make things happen. He's a salesman. He's a hustler. Um, this is B- Buster Moon is the name of the bear. Yeah. Yes, Buster Moon. And I, um, you know, when I, when I talked to the Australians, they all expected me to, oh, why didn't he have an Australian accent? He's, he's a koala bear. And I was like, no, I didn't take it that literally. Um, <laughs> I mean, they, it's, he's, the, he's the salesman koala bear who must, the show must go on. And he's going to do whatever he can to make the show, the theater, carry on. And he comes up with this great idea to have a singing competition. And I saw the, uh, I saw Sing on the same day as I saw Gold, which we'll talk, to, talk about in a bit. And actually... There is definitely a connection between the two characters. Uh, yes. You know, even though one is a koala bear and the other is a kind of a prospector miner. Um, anyway, but we'll but we'll get to that. But there's there's some very interesting uh, connections. So the the cast in uh, in Sing it's got a terrific voiceover cast. But that whole uh, act of doing the voiceover of mm. being in an animated movie. I know you've done it before, but is it? liberating is it quite challenging is it tougher than it appears or did you just have a party have the last it is like having a party and i and i've the only one i've done before was kubo and the two strings yes. which was earlier this year and then sing and these are my first two um you know once i i came in with an idea of the, of the voice for buster moon and the attack on his voice is very different than my voice now but as soon as the producers and the directors like we like where you're going we like what you've come in with. It's easy peasy. I mean, what was your idea? Um, just in that optimism. If you notice, my, my voice has a sort of a musical little end on a down note. Buster Moon is always on the out note. Everything, and he sort of rampages through his obstacles um, to keep things going. Um, and that was the attack on, on the voice that I chose. And so they liked that. And once we, once they were happy with that the first day, and I was happy, the rest of it's easy. I mean, you can roll out of bed, honestly, in your pajamas and walk into the sound studio. Look how you want. Um, you don't have to match your, your, your weight or your look or anything. And so you screw up. What are you wasting? Audio tape. 
do another take. They just press record the whole day and have a video camera there also to capture some physical movements that maybe they'll give to the animated character if they like them. And then it was just playtime. Whisper it, yell it, sing it. When you said it's only the second one that you've done, it sounded as though, in, in that answer, it sounded as though you were slightly surprised that you've only done two and that when you've been around for as long as you have, maybe they'd have asked you to do a, an animation before now. I would have thought so. Um, and I was, I was looking. I was calling heads of Disney in different places. You weren't. I, I did do cold calls. Hey, keep me in mind for a um, uh, for some animated voice work. And this is, I mean, I have an eight-year-old son, so this probably got more in my consciousness as soon as I had a son. And your kids watch animated films. I'm like, I've got to do one of these. Plus, I'm looking at my own career, the things I've been doing for the last two ten years, and I don't have many films, if any, that my they kids can see. see. No, well, the last show, the, the last. Uh, time you came on this show was for Magic Mike and I'm imagining that there will be a moment where you sit down with your kids and and, and watch Magic Mike and they'll Absolutely. go oh, dad really <laughs> <laughs> yes but not yet our kids are eight seven and four That'll be that opens way off up then. a lot of that opens up a lot of uh, conversation I'm not ready to have yet with be, them yeah absolutely no absolutely but, I was just thinking Magic Mike of all the films maybe is the one that maybe you'll hold back on or maybe they can see it without you <laughs> Uh, I don't know when the time will come. I suppose that they'll, they'll um, you know, being my kids, they'll be able to get the uh, the humor and magic mic pretty quickly. I'm sure they will. So Scarlett Johansson and Reese Witherspoon. Taron Edgerton uh, puts in a great performance. Great as a, voice. As a, as a, as a Johnny. Cur- yeah. Now, <clears throat> the criminal, I just want to take issue with this. The criminal, the only British voice talent, really, are the criminals. And I think this is uh, unfair. Oh, absolutely on purpose. Very <laughs> deliberate, I'm sure. They're all like Cockney voices. They're all <laughs> busting. They're, they're running a gang and breaking banks and stuff. Yes. But that, that's that's a, a good, f- fun stream of, of the story. They're the gorillas. Yeah. Uh, um, it, it's, there's so many fun characters in this, in this, uh, uh, in this film. One of the great viewing uh, pleasures of this is that, and I've seen it multiple times, my kids have seen it multiple times, is each time you watch, I have a different favorite song or a different favorite character. Now, Gunther, Gunther, I'm fine. How are you? He's still my favorite. Um, but my kids have a different favorite character every time they go watch it. I'm yet to be their favorite character. Their father okay. is yet to be their favorite character, but I am in the top five. That, you know, that, that will come. And you do, I mean, you, I mentioned Magic Mike, and you sing in Magic Mike, and you do sing. Uh, uh, it's, Carly Jepsen, uh, don't call, call, call me, call me, call me maybe. maybe, yeah. Yes. That? Oh, that was fun. I didn't know. I had said when I went into it, I said, uh, you know, I'm the only one in the script that doesn't sing anything. And they said, well, we'll work on that. And so I show up one day and they go, here, talk to the Scarlett Johansson character. And, 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 and she's the, the punk rocker and she's a bit of the, you know, the one trying to sing the dark tales. And, and um, I'm the salesman that tells her, no, sing something that's uh, applicable for the kids. Wear this pink dress and sing Call Me Maybe. And so I start to sing. I do a little pitch. And sing it to and, him. And very good, can I say? Oh, I think thank may, you. Maybe the hardest work on this movie was the people who had to clear all the songs because I think they're like 65. 104. 104. I had to take 65 down. 104. 65, so. I think, total. 104, uh, if you total even little sound bites that were picked from different songs and music. Wow. Anyway, uh, it's going to be, it's clearly going to be huge. Everyone will be singing it, and there are some great gags in there. And, and, the, and, and there is a connection. It's not just that we, we've got two Matthew McConaughey movies to talk about, but there is an optimistic hustler, huckster kind of uh, link between a Buster Moon, the koala bear, and Kenny Wells that you play. I mean, it's yes. clearly 
coincidence? Or I mean, not? if I unpack it now sitting with you today, I, I want to say it's coincidence, but then it's probably not. I mean, uh, um, yeah, there is, I, I said delusional optimism earlier, and you said hustler salesman, um, you know, uh, uh, Buster Moon's going to do whatever he can by hook or by crook to keep the theater alive, and Kenny Wells is a guy who literally has a dream that he knows where the gold is, hawks a watch and buys one-way ticket to Indonesia to make it happen. Um, and he's a man with nine lives. He's a man that uh, um, shouldn't, by all rationale, get the gold, and he does find it. Um, and he hustles his way, <laughs> the entire way, uh, into it. So, yeah, that, I suppose I never really thought about it, but they're, they're, they're cousins. And, uh, and the other connection is the father figure, because uh, I don't want to overplay this, yeah, but, but yeah. Buster Moon, the koala bear, as a photograph of his dad, uh, and he wants to keep the theatre open because it was his father's theatre. And Kenny Wells, we see at the beginning of the movie, he inherits this company from his father, mm. and his father is a profound influence. And I think your father, a big part of the way you're playing Kenny, just just e- explain a little bit about uh, that. Absolutely. Um, Kenny Wells is a character who, again, he's a prospector, as you said, looks for, for minerals, gold, nickel, silver, um, beneath the surface of the earth. And he, his grand- grandfather started the company, made it very successful. His father took over the company, kept it very successful. And it's been handed over to Kenny after his father died. We meet Kenny eight years later, and Kenny has run the company into the ground. How much is that is his fault? How much is that is the economy's downfall? Uh, let's say a little bit of both. But he's at the bottom of the barrel. Living with his girlfriend, they're behind on the rent. Uh, his, the company's not worth much at all. Um... And a lot of what Kenny Wells, is where he gets his fight from, is that he doesn't want to break that chain, that lineage chain to his, to his father and the family name. There's two, there's two great scenes in this film that I think sum up the purity of this, kid, this guy's spirit. There's a scene where he's offered $300 million to sell his company, but they're going to take his name off of it, and he'll have none of that. And he's very, he has no trouble saying... No, thank you at all, in much harsher words, to the $300 million. But you know what he has trouble doing? He has the most trouble. He sweats in his boots the most when he has to receive the Prospect of the Year Award in front of his peers in Reno, Nevada. Now, that's a pure spirit. Now, me, on my end, my dad didn't inherit a company from my father, but I, um, I sure did get to know the Kenny Wellses of the world through my father, and my father had a bit of Kenny Wells in him. He would take me around as a kid when I was 12 to go collect from people. We drive her all around the United States to go to offices to collect money from people that owed him. When you carry along a 12-year-old, you can shame some people into paying you money, uh, paying you back. He'd also take me uh, with him to go do some of these very fun and shady deals, you know, behind the abandoned strip mall that uh, um, between the dumpsters and the down power lines, buying hot, hocked watches out of a van from a guy named Chicago John. And the watches that we got for $3,000 that were supposedly worth 22000 really weren't even worth $500. But it wasn't about the good deal. It was about the, the, the shadiness of the deal, the fun of getting away with it. And that's what Kenny Wells is doing. It's, and that's when he says in the movie, there's a difference between money and gold. This is not a, gold's not a story about greed. It's a story about gold. And the gold is the pulling it off, the proving them all wrong, the making it happen however you can. Um, and that's, that, that was a lot of what my dad was about. The Matthew McConaughey I'm looking at now is the Matthew McConaughey people would, would recognize and very much 
the movie star, the one that we see in this movie, you put on, well, you're almost unrecognizable. I mean, you've put on an awful lot of weight, put on mm. three stone, you're balding. Uh, tell us what you had to do for that. Um, well, all of the Kenny Wells's I had met, and, and the real guy, this is based on a real, on a real guy, um, were, were full-bodied. They were, they, were, they were sort of uh, uh, big around the center. I always like to say, Kenny Wells is not fat, he's full. Um, so I got up to 217. These are also guys who don't look in the proverbial mirror. These are guys, Kenny Wells, the guys, you know, if, if he wouldn't have died of a heart attack, which he did after about 20 minutes after he got hit by a large blunt object in real life. These are guys that don't live past the age of 60. Well, the amount you smoke and drink in this movie is phenomenal. Uh, consumer of life. Kenny Wells, smoke, drink, eat, uh, love, laugh, host, hate. All of it. I mean, it, these are guys that every day um, have this sort of appetite, insatiable appetite. Um, and I think it's almost survival. But putting on three stone and then losing it again, yes. that, must, that must be hard work, surely. It was hard work. And it was much more fun putting it on. The cheeseburgers and beer, I never got tired of them for six months. And, uh, but I, my, my family sure enjoyed while I was putting on the weight because I was, I was Captain Fun around the household. <laughs> I was yes to everything. Pizza night was any night or any morning you wanted it while I was working on this. And then the taking it off, yeah, it was, um, I mean, it took six months to put it on, took six months to take it off. Wow. Um, a couple of other projects to mention, if I may, a lot of people are very excited about Dark Tower. Yes. Uh, what, is there anything you can tell us about this? I mean, it's, it's one of Stephen King's finest works, of course. Yes. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a mythic um, tale of good versus evil, a very dark tale of Christianity. Um, multiple worlds um, simultaneously uh, inhabitable. Uh, myself and Idris Elba. I'm the Walter, the Man in Black, um, and he's the Gunslinger, and um, we do duel. Well, I know all that because I've read the book. But is there any, is there anything else you can tell us? Yeah, that's about, about that? that's about it for now. Okay, I'm just yeah, just just a few little teases. That's all. Were you? I really, really enjoyed Free State of Jones. I thought mm. your performance in that movie was terrific. Do you Thank feel you. frustrated about what happened? That it that? came and went. Yeah, um, an extraordinary story. An extraordinary story that I think was was worth was worth sharing, um, and that's why I became a part of it. That's why Gary Ross wrote it, and that was his passion project for ten years. I feel a little more frustrated for him because he had ten years invested in this. I came on and gave um, you know about a year of my life to it. And it was unfortunate because it came and went and all of a sudden it was gone. And now the only time people see it, I'm now only starting to hear people like you who saw it. Did you see it in the theater? Did yeah. you see it on? Okay. I, you saw, the, I, went, I went to see it in the cinema. Yeah. One of the few that saw it in the cinema. Um, I mean, the frustrating part is your best laid plans. You go out there. I'm proud of the work. I think it's a, a classy project. I think it's well done. I think it's well intended. I think it's what we intended to put up on the screen as well. And then all that work goes into it, and sometimes what happens, happens like with Free State. In the United States, it came and went and was gone. Um, I think it, my hunch is that it will have a life uh, of its own after, you know, for the next 10, 15, 20 years. It's definitely a quiver and a, a feather in my cap I'm proud of, but it does pinch a little bit when, when, it, when it's, it's not seen. And you go back, you try to figure out why. Um, was it the wrong timing? You can't say, I'm not going to say that it didn't work because it's a poor movie, because it's not. And plus, not enough people even saw it to go say, oh, it, sure. it didn't translate or not. Um, 
it was bad timing. You just, you know, you chalk it up and you say, hey, it'll have an afterlife. And finally, on Inauguration Day, how does that feel, watching it from this distance? Well, um, I think that'll be 5 o'clock this afternoon, and if I'm done work, I'm definitely going to watch. And what um, will you be thinking? What am I thinking, or what are people thinking? What will you be thinking when well, you're watching it? I'm, uh, uh, I think I'm embracing this, this transition, because it's going down. It's happening. And there's still a lot of people in America that are almost in denial that it is happening, and it really is happening. Um, so... This, uh, this uh, habit we have of, of, of disagreeing and being disagreeable, I think we need, to, we need to get past the disagreeable part, and it's okay to disagree. And we need to have uh, a more transparent uh, um, dialogues than we've been having, because it is going down. And for those on the left that are in denial of that or didn't want that, I think today is the day where that reality is in everyone's face, and I think that's a good thing for us. Uh, Matthew, a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much indeed. My pleasure. Great to start the day off. I started the day off. You started, I, you started the day off. I was the first thing that he saw. So, uh, yeah, Matthew, with his thoughts on uh, the inauguration at the end, just because it seemed like the obvious place to uh, to finish the conversation, yeah. uh, full coverage will be on Drive a little bit later. What, of Matthew McConaughey or of, of, the, Matthew of, McConaughey. The, other, of the other yeah, business? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so we can't talk about gold because you haven't seen that. That's coming yeah. out in a few weeks' time. And Sing is sort of available. So Sing, basically, they've got previews this weekend uh, and then it opens properly on uh, next Friday. And I have seen it. And uh, uh, the the thing with Sing is Sing is directed by Garth Jennings, who made uh, Son of Rambo, which is one of my favourite films. And it was Son of Rambo is 10 years ago now, which is absolutely terrifying. Um, when it was uh, Hammer and Tong, so they made uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which I didn't like at all. I mean, they had this sort of incredible background in pop videos and did some really sort of inventive pop videos. And then uh, Son of Rambo, which I thought was absolutely wonderful. And then I was asking Garth Jennings about this. They said, how come it took 10, you know, 10 years? Between He said, well, I was trying to get some other things off the ground. But the fact of the matter is animation has just taken an awfully long time to do. And for a while, Sing was nicknamed Lunch. Because it was it was pitched to him over a lunch meeting, uh, the guy who was uh, you know from Illumination, the, the studio said, "I've got this idea about you know this sort of singing competition with animals." And so for a long time, they just called it lunch because he kept referring to you know that lunch movie, you know that thing we talked about at lunch. And the more he thought about it, the more he thought this is actually doable. And I went in with some trepidation because I thought what it was going to be was a film about a singing contest, and I'm not really very interested in singing contests and X Factor. Kind of is that, but it is, but it's also much more like a kind of old. Uh, you know, Mickey Rooney, Judy Garland, let's do the show here, let's put the show on in the barn. It's got a much more old-fashioned feel to it. It's very sentimental, it's very sweet. Um, it's like it, an episode of The Muppets. That's actually not a bad comparison, and is actually... Let's I, save the theatre. Uh, yeah, exactly, and is I think a rather... Also, I think you mean that as a, as a praiseworthy Absolutely. comparison. Because it's, you know, that's a good thing for it to be. And at the beginning, I sort of thought, OK, I, I'm, you know, I'm, am I going to warm to this? I, I have such uh, such a lot of aberration for Garth Jennings, and, you know, yet it's going to be, you know, animating, doing the singing competition. And actually what happens is you do become swept up in not just the songs, but in the characters who are very nicely portrayed, the good sort of thumbnail sketches. They're all to do with facing their own demons and overcoming their own, you know, their fears about whether they're good enough, which refers to something uh, back we were talking about in La La Land earlier on. And by the time you get to the, we move towards the final act, towards the third act of it, I was swept up. I think it'll, it's a film that will put a smile on a particularly younger viewer's face. After the news, I'll read you the BBFC advice because it's a use certificate film and the BBFC advice is... Very, very, oh, funny, really? very charming. Yeah, yeah. I'll read it to you. Okay. Anyway, before you continue with your sing things, I just want to mention uh, Joe Berrick, who's been on. Who's been on? Okay, okay. 
Um, Joe says, uh, he's, uh, in case you didn't know, he's a secondary school teacher. OK. And he's a secondary school teacher in the Birmingham area. So that been for the Birmingham years. area. Yeah, so not fair. Birmingham, the Birmingham area. You've been uh, with me throughout my uh, secondary education, sixth form university, teacher training, three countries of residence, seven cities and innumerable houses, flats and apartments, which is why I felt I had to share with you another moment of pure pleasure I was lucky enough to witness. Our year seven classes are currently doing a short scheme of learning based on Pixar's wonderful Inside Out movie. Yes. This will culminate I in love. having a small in-class debate on the nature of heroes and who, if any, is the hero of the film. For the record, says, uh, says Joe, I am team sadness all the way. Mm-hmm. Anyway, as part of this, we, of course, needed to watch the film in class and we were coming up to a moment that I was dreading. The decision by mm-hmm. which allows mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. and... Mm. I'm not sure if you can do spoilers for a film that has been out for a long time, so I suppose you could always call it a Dumbledore-esque unfortunate incident. Anyway, we mumbled our way through it. I had been worrying about this particular moment for the entire lesson. I can understand that. Because I knew I would suffer in-lesson lacrimosity syndrome. My eyeballs would explode and floods of tears would appear before my lovely Year 7 pupils' eyes, leading to much hilarity and embarrassment, I was sure. Mm -hmm. Sure enough, I did cry, and as I looked up, the first thing I saw was a small boy trying to stifle a laugh at my expense. (laughs) Sir, you big weedy wet. (laughs) However, from across the room... Did you say you're utterly wet under weed? No, because I don't think they're that well-bred on Molesworth. However, from across the room, a tiny voice piped up from the back. Don't worry, sir, I'm crying too. This was followed by around 20 other little tear-stained faces nodding in agreement. To see such powerful reaction to the film take place in my classroom, uh, particularly when it was able to break through the usual I-need-to-be-cool-at-school stuff that can sometimes limit emotional responses, was a phenomenal moment. A true realisation of the power of film, it was heartbreaking and wonderful in equal measure. And I bet you that the the child who called out, Sir, you're a big weedy wet, was actually doing it because they felt themselves welling up and it's... You know, easy it's, to easy to cover that. Yeah, exactly. Oh, big weedy wet, sir. Uh, anyway, so Joe, thank you very much indeed for the email. That's very nice. Mayo at bbc.co.uk. Uh, Ian in Liverpool. I'm writing on the subject of spoilers, which I know because we we do we you, you could just hear we were tiptoeing around. Yes. I know that you go to some lengths to avoid when discussing a film. My issue, however, isn't with you. It's with the email sent in from listeners that Simon has to regularly redact on the mumbling over of lines. Um, which you've just heard. We're all members of the church, my friends, says Ian, so please give some thought to what you write when you contact the show. Some of those spoilers might slip past the ninja redaction squad and nobody <laughs> wants that. Tinkety-tonk, old fruit, and down with the Nazis is how that one is signed uh, as well. Ian in Liverpool, thank you very much indeed. So you, uh, before the news, we were talking to Matthew McConaughey. He's still yeah. very difficult to spell Matthew's name. I just do MM. I, yeah, it's I just... know what. Two T's in Matthew, and I know it's MCC. And, but it's only got one N or something, hasn't yes, it? Isn't that right. it's wrong? Yes. It's G-H-E-Y and all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, two films to talk about. Uh, one is Gold, which is coming out in a few weeks' time. And I think it's probably the more interesting of the films, but Sing is... But Sing is, Sing is charming, and uh, I think particularly for, 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 for younger viewers, I think they will enjoy it. And I, I was uh, won over by it, n- not least because it, it turned into something which I didn't quite expect it to be. I thought it was... I mean, I'm a huge Illuminations fan. I mean, right at the very beginning, they've got the Illuminations um, uh, name sung by the Minions, you know, Illuminations, Illuminations, which is very funny. Exactly, and I started laughing then. So Just I was explain kind of, about Illuminations. So with their, their, the animation studio that do a, a whole bunch of me, including, you know, most significantly for me, the Minions movies, which, which are very, very hard to top. 
Um, and in the case of this, I mean, this has done in incredibly well uh, worldwide already. It's taken a huge amount of money. I suppose it might may well turn up in the nominations at the Oscars. It was nominated for Golden Globe, wasn't it? And it may turn up in the in the Oscar nominations. But one of the things that's interesting about it is the BBFC uh, advice. I, I love the BBFC advice. I love the BBFC. But it's a use certificate film. You generally means contains no no material likely to harm or offend. But they're very specific because they want to tell you everything. Just so for for forewarned is forearmed. So it says, you know, language, there, there, there are uses of but and jerk. But the most fantastic thing is under threat, we get characters sometimes you know, look like they're in danger, a lighting rig is accidentally dislodged, all that sort of stuff. Running storyline concerns a mouse character who's pursued by a gang of bears that he's cheated in a card game. And he often seems to be on the point of being eaten by the bears, but he sort of characteristically saves himself. And then the final one, only the BBFC would do this. There is also rude humour with a bison character repeatedly passing wind because he's nervous about performing <laughs> on stage. It's basically they should feel right. a bit too... Do you think there is anybody who would have complained about it? Do we, do we need to be told there's a windy buffalo? I just think it's lovely that the BBFC have gone to the trouble of pointing out, obviously, the, with the insight information, it always says, you know, may contain spoilers, and it is indeed a spoiler that the bison breaks wind. OK. What I should also say is thank you to everybody who getting in touch to point out that a koala isn't a bear. I was clearly being led on this by the man who was playing the voice of the koala, as in Matthew McConaughey, but it's an arboreal marsupial, so... But I'm sorry. Uh, OK. I'm learning something new every day. Yes. It's a koala. So we don't say koala bears? Well, you can. And then, Matthew did. But Matthew did. Exactly, exactly. So why, why, why do we always... I mean, I know, of course, when you think about it, it's a small animal, not like a bear at all. They I probably mean, look like... Werner Herzog's grizzly koala wouldn't have been anything like us. No. We've obviously inaccurately been calling them koala bears okay. all this time, and he is just a koala, being an arboreal marsupial. Okay. 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 So thank you very much, Steve, for everyone who's been correcting me, and you can now stop. stop. <laughs> uh, Keith in Birmingham saw Sing in South Africa a few weeks ago. Agree with Mark. Uh, really enjoyed it. So as you say, it has opened uh, yeah, around, around the world. Parts. And there are so many songs in there. It is, I mean, it is about a singing contest, and it is full of songs that you will yes, but it, see on but, X Factor. But it doesn't end up being an X Factor cartoon, which is what I was worried it was going to be. It's much more... Like I said, a throwback to the old Warner Brothers pictures. It's much more that, as I said before, Mickey Rudy, Junior Girl, and Summerstock. You know, let's do let let's let's do the show here. That kind of thing. Yes, uh, and he's and he's and he's very entertaining. And you'll have to download the soundtrack probably at some stage uh, as well. Yeah, and he, even though there are songs in there that don't necessarily push my buttons, not enough concert angels, sadly. I I did notice yeah, there, none at all. There's so many opportunities. I thought, here yeah, they're going to do. I'm falling on the subject of soundtrack. By the way, when we do get to talk about gold in a yeah. few weeks' time, the other Matthew McConaughey. Gold. He the, the, even though the story was originally based in the 90s and yeah. based on a real life scandal involving a Canadian company, yeah. they've moved it to the 80s, and I think the the only reason they did that is to have a song soundtrack. And there is a bit halfway through where, for no real reason, they play Atmosphere by Joy Division. Okay. Not Russ Abbott. They do the. It was, <laughs> I love a party yeah, with they, it. They don't do that, which is wonderful. You know, and you, I started air drumming instantly uh, as soon as that comes on. But anyway, so I think there's no real reason for making 80s unless it's like Wolf of Wall Street time. Okay. Uh, quarter past three, other stuff that's out. Yeah, so let's do Jackie. So this is the new film by Pablo Lorraine, Chilean director, and it is a drama, a kaleidoscopic look at the events surrounding uh, the assassination of uh, John F. Kennedy as seen through the eyes of the First Lady Jackie Kennedy, played by Natalie Portman. Uh, the film basically juggles a number of different time frames from uh, the motorcade in Dallas, 
uh, the events on the aeroplane, the aftermath uh, in the White House, the funeral itself and everything. And it sort of shuffles these cards around willy nilly. And the whole film is then uh, has a framing device which is inspired by um, uh, an interview with Jackie Hendy done by Theodore White for Life magazine, in which uh, Natalie Portman's Jackie Kennedy is interviewed by an unnamed journalist, in this particular case played by Billy Crudup, who uh, turns up at the door and the very, very first thing she says is, please understand, I'm, you know, I'm going to be editing this conversation. This is going to be my version of events. You'll have to share something personal eventually. People won't stop asking until you do. And if I don't, they'll interpret my silence however they want. Her brow furrows, her lips are drawn. She holds back her tears, but she can't hide her anger. Most writers want to be famous. You want to be famous? No, I am fine as I am, thank you. You should prepare yourself. This article will bring you a great deal of attention. Oh, in that case, any advice for me? Yes. Don't marry the president. <laughs> Are you afraid I'm about to cry again? No, I, I say you're more likely to scream. Scream what? My husband was a great man. Now, the interesting thing about the film, as you heard there from that very brief clip, is that the performance that Natalie Portman does is very, very mannered, not just vocally, which you can hear there, but also in the way in which it's physically uh, performed. And I confess that it took me two runs to get the measure of Jackie. What she's doing is she is playing somebody who is performing. She is playing somebody who is performing for the media interview, who immediately after, in the aftermath of this unbelievably horrendous event um, is suddenly having to be on a public stage in which she is having to orchestrate not only the grief that the nation feels, but also to manufacture the way in which the press and the public will receive the legacy of her husband and she's attempting to build the Camelot legacy the legacy of you know never never be forgot that for one brief moment there was a spot that was Camelot which is then the story that then did become the legend of the Kennedy presidency and what uh, Lorraine's film does is it looks at the construction of that idea and it looks at Jackie Kennedy as somebody who is on the one hand in the middle of this absolutely horrendous personal whirlwind this, the most unbelievably horrible thing has happened. She is then having to deal with having to move out of the White House because the next administration is coming in and the next administration are much more abrasive, uh, abrasive and much more aggressive. She is having to deal with the press and not just the written press, but also television. And one of the things that the film does is it intersperses and restages and recreates a documentary from 1962, I think, uh, a tour of the White House by Mrs. John F. Kennedy. And so the, the film presents her as the first lady of the televisual age, somebody who is able to deal with all these sort of multimedia rights. But in the middle of all this is also dealing with the, the most horrendous personal tragedy. And the performance, therefore, when I first saw it, I, it felt it was so mannered, so stagey, so controlled that I actually, I have to say that I felt it alienating and I didn't quite connect with the film. The second time I saw it, because I, I really thought there was more to it than I'd got the first time around, it clicked for me. And two things happened. Firstly, it was it's not alienating, it's alienated. And that then made sense. That then absolutely started to make sense that what Natalie Portman was doing was performing the isolation, performing the 
the the alien environment that she's in. There are many scenes in which she's walking through the White House set, brilliantly done White House set, which are almost like a character wandering through the Overlook Hotel in The Shining. And make no you know mistake, in some ways, this is a ghost story. And there are elements of horror and elements of delirium and fantasia involved in it. So that was the first thing. The other thing is that Mika Levy's score, which is just brilliant, the second time round really worked its magic. Uh, you remember that she did such fantastic work on uh, Under the Skin and really, you know, drew that film's heart and soul out of the film and and it, and did did so so brilliantly. And in the case of this, that swooning glissant, she, there's a if you know the the music that Johnny Greenwood did for There Will Be Blood, that strange. I'm sorry, I sound like somebody. No, there was there was. Thank you. It was good. But there are these these strange swooning motifs, and there are comparisons to some extent between what Mika Levy is doing and what Johnny Greenwood was doing. But she is absolutely somebody in of her own. And what she does is she creates this soundscape that pulls all these fractured elements together that somehow manages to encapsulate on the one hand a sense of personal tragedy, on the other on the other hand a sense of brooding conspiracy and also a kind of a sunny optimism that has been shattered in the wake of Dealey Plaza and silences, really <clears throat> important silences between chords that and it, I more than anything, I thought it was a film in which... I mean, I think her work is... is and it's been nominated for awards, and, and correctly so, because it is the thing that pulls together this kaleidoscopic picture. It's interesting that in the um, December 63 issue of Life magazine, they talk about the kaleidoscope of events after the Kennedy assassination almost immediately. Kaleidoscope is a word which is used really, really early on in the historical documents. And it's the word that keeps coming back to me when every and you know when the conspiracy theory was sort of at its height, people talking about kaleidoscopic versions of the truth, and there is a sense with the movie that the world has been shaken and the you know the 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 bits of the kaleidoscope are sort of floating around, and what you need therefore is something to glue that together. And for me, Mika Levy's score is the thing that does it. I think Natalie Portman's performance on second viewing is actually very fine. It's, it is stagey and theatrical and with a purpose. Um, first time round, I found it alienating. And I know some people who found the film just just hard to get into. I would say that it is worth... There's two things I've seen twice this week, this and Lion, which we'll talk about in a moment. And both of them rewarded second viewing. OK, so let's assume that overwhelmingly people are going to go and see it once. Yes. Okay. I have already got my tickets. I'm going to go and see it uh, tomorrow. OK. So, Oh, really? OK, fine. So I want. I don't want to have to see it again. So what do I need to bear in mind to get it? OK, well, the thing that I'd say is, firstly, the, the performance, which seems so odd at the beginning, seems so arch, there is a reason for it, that she is performing a performance. And in fact, in some scenes, she's performing a performance of a performance, OK? So the central thing about it is it's not meant to be naturalistic. It's meant to be somebody suddenly caught in the glare of the, of the world putting a face forward. That's the first thing. The second thing is if you start to feel emotionally disengaged, let the, movie, let, let the music do the heavy lifting because it will do. Uh, Simon Smith, without his dancing bear, in Nunhead. <laughs> okay. um, 
When I first read that Natalie Portman was starring in a biopic of Jackie Kennedy, my heart sank. I expected this would be another Oscar fodder historical biopic, the kind of movie where the audience is expected to applaud its star for impersonating a well-known figure and gasp at the historical accuracy of the period, costumes and set design. Thankfully, nothing could be further from the truth. This film is devoid of the usual Hollywood sentiment or histrionics. Screenwriter Noah Oppenheim has done an incredible job at peeling back the layers of Jackie's psyche. There is a surgical precision to the way the script explores her anger, fear, guilt and despair in the minutes, hours and days following her husband's murder. It is testament to the writer, director and cast that we never feel we are watching a film about a historic event. This is a film about human beings at their most vulnerable. The supporting cast, Peter Sarsgaard, Billy Crudup, John Hurt, Richard E. Grant... Richard E. Grant, Richard e. Grant an unrecognisable Richard who is, e. Grant. Who does he play? I, I, I'm, I, I'm not going to tell you because here's what I want you to do. I want you to watch the film and forget that he's in it. OK. okay and, then, and then suddenly what will happen is you'll go, oh, my word, that's Richard E. Grant. A uniformly excellent, but the real honours go to Natalie Portman. She appears in every scene and delivers a raw, unflinching portrayal of a woman navigating her roles as widow, mother and first lady while under the spotlight of the world's media. Some filmmakers might have been tempted to portray Jackie as a saint-like victim, but this film avoids any such clichés, a magnificent piece of filmmaking and gripping from beginning to end. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't portray her as a saint-like victim at all. What it does is it portrays her as somebody who is in the middle of this maelstrom, having to grasp a moment in order to in order to, to create a legacy whilst also dealing with everything else. I mean, there are some scenes in it that are really very upsetting. Um, and it, it's a tribute to it the second time round I got that. First time round, I, I confess, and, the you know, it's, it seems like a weird phrase to use. When people break up with people, they say, it's not you, it's me. And there are times with, with a film that I feel... It's not you, it's me. And that's when I try and give it a second run. And I'm so glad I did with Jackie because it wasn't it, it was me. Is it true uh, that the actual assassination is pretty tough? Yes. Appropriately so or...? I think it is appropriately so because it's because you have to realise just how... I mean, we're all familiar with the, you know, let them see what they've done, you know, you know they're not refusing to change the clothes and let them. I want them to see what they've done. But I also think that since the Sabruda footage has been shown on, you know, ad infinitum, it's not like people, it's not like that image isn't out. But yes, it is. It is quite, and what it's a tribute to it, that it is as tough as it is. Uh, one more on this date for the moment. David Dickin, a wicketkeeper for Conway Street Middle School uh, in 1978. I'm a colonial commoner living on the Gold Coast of Australia. Um and one word for this movie, which is wow. My wife and I went to the Gold Coast Art Centre to see it last Sunday. As an aside, was probably one of the youngest there. I have to say, being a student of the 60s culture and happenings, obviously the Kennedy legend plays a big part of it. I thought I would give this movie a try, having seen pretty much everything else on the subject. I can honestly say I have never sat through a movie with such a spellbound audience in my life. Wow. And can only say what a tour de force Natalie Portman is. Although a tough watch, it was immensely enjoyable. Uh, I can't believe Natalie Portman didn't win a Golden Globe. Surely she must be up there for the Oscar. Even more odd was Pablo Larin not being nominated at all. Mm. I don't think she will win the Oscar, incidentally. But then, you know, uh, let's bear in mind the Oscars are tosh. So, uh, 327, what can we... Um, split. Play around with here. I'll do Split. So, right, yeah. Split is the new film from uh, M. Night Shyamalan, which has had critics everywhere saying, well, it's a film that's going to split audiences, isn't it? So, um, it's described... Shyamalan is still, I think, best known for Sixth Sense, although, I, I, you know, I would hold that Unbreakable is his, you know, is his, his great piece. And... Um, 
and that's an interesting spectre in the in the in the particular case of Split. So it's described in the press notes as an original film that delves into the recesses of a man's fractured mind. It's about a character played by James McAvoy who has a split personality. I think he has 23 split personalities. Now, let's be clear, this is not incidentally a twist. One of the things about the film is, whereas M. Night Shyamalan became very famous for doing movies with a twist, you know, there was always up to a certain point and then a thing happened, oh, that's the reveal. In the case of this, the reveal is at the very beginning. Very, very early on, it's revealed that he is a split, the, the title itself says split. Now, split personalities, multiple personalities are absolutely cinematic staples. So, you know, Psycho, Primal Fear, Me, Myself, Irene, Switch Bay Romance, Three Faces of Eve, Ninth Configuration. And, you know, it's, it's something which filmmakers use over and over again. And um, so here, James McAvoy is the central core of 23, I think it's 23 personalities. Betty Buckley is a psychiatrist who believes that somehow if you believe that you are somebody, you can physically change the person. So, it's, so, for example, you can have multiple personalities in which one of them is a diabetic and one of them isn't. You can have multiple... And this, is, this is kind of the idea. At the very beginning of the film, there is a kidnapping of uh, three young women who are then by McAvoy in one of his characters. What then happens is that they find themselves dealing with 23 different people. Patricia, who is a woman who is uh, prim and proper and sort of seems strangely controlling. Um, there is a, a young man who calls himself Hedwig, who appears to be a child and uh, who we'll hear from in just a moment. There is another who is a, a sort of camp fashion designer who sort of appears to be more in control than perhaps you would think. Anyway, here's a clip of James McAvoy in the Hedwig personality. My name's Hedwig. I have red socks. He's on the move. What? He's on the move. (gasps) Someone's coming for you, and you're not going to like it. You guys make noises in your sleep. Tell us. I'm not supposed to say. But he's done awful things to people and he'll do awful things to you. The funny thing with Shyamalan is this. When Shyamalan started his career, um, you know, Sixth Sense was really sort of brilliantly well received and, you know, got great reviews and did really, really well with with, uh, with, with audiences. And then, you know, Unbreakable, which I think is a, a fine piece of work. I have a soft spot for The Village, although uh, some people really can't get their hat on about that film at all. I can just about manage signs. Then there was The Lady in the Water, which is a terrible film, and for some reason included a character who was a film critic who was, you know, viciously dispensed with, which confused everybody because it was like, but up until now, people have been nice about your films. I mean, this is a terrible film, but it's like you've kind of judged in advance that they're going to kick this one. The reason is that it's really, really terrible. And then, you know, Happening and Last Airbender and After Earth and all that sort of stuff. So he he did go into a slump in which he appeared to have completely lost his mojo. Then there was The Visit low budget, stripped down, going back to the roots, doing it on his own. Now, I did not like The Visit. I'll be absolutely clear about this. But I know enough people that do like The Visit who didn't like those other films that I was mentioning before um, to think, OK, he's 
he's obviously pulled something out of the hat with the visit because I know loads and loads of people whose opinion I respect uh, who, who did think the visit was creepy. You did think the visit was quite scary. You did think the visit was a bit of a surprise. In the case of this, again, it's, it's a sort of self-financed, relatively low-budget production. Centrally, one actor playing 23... I mean, actually, not, he's not playing all 23 of them, but there's 23 meant to be in there. Uh, you know, high-concept idea in which it's revealed at the beginning what the high-concept is, and obviously during the course of him, rather than there being twists, there are going to be revelations. There are going to be, uh, you know, things that happen in the plot that you didn't see, but that's not necessarily a twist as such. So I applaud it for those things. And I enjoyed McAvoy's performance and he obviously enjoyed himself. I mean, who wouldn't? You know, it's like that whole thing about, hey, in this particular role, you can do a whole bunch of different people and who wouldn't enjoy that? And he's the kind of actor, he's got that slightly wicked smile. You know, he's got that slightly... There's just something about him. He's a little cheeky and a little bit dangerous, but also funny. He can, so he can do enchanting. And so his performance is really enjoyable. That said, it didn't quite work for me. I found sections of it dragged. The script is not brilliantly written. The script, is, some of the dialogue is a little on the ear-scraping plot exposition side. And... Although you can see where it's moving toward in terms of its denouement, I found where it went to slightly unsatisfying. However, having had a long period of just finding M. Night Shyamalan really quite annoying because I knew that he could make better films and he seemed to be just making bad films and getting worse... I do think that returning to his roots, stripping things down, going back to what he, you know, what he has control and he does best has pro if this was a B movie and you didn't know anything about it, you didn't know anything about Shyamalan, you didn't know anything about I mean Anya Taylor, Taylor Joy, who is the sort of the other star of it, who was so brilliant in The Witch and so brilliant in Morgan, and I think she's really good in this. You would forgive the fact that there are moments when suddenly everyone has to run around in their pants because you, could, you just think, oh, well, it's because it's a B movie. That sort of moment strikes a very, very different chord in the light of it being actually a production by somebody who's had a fairly stellar career in the past. So if you just saw it with no no sort of preconceptions, you think it's a fine sort of William Castle-y, twisty psychological thriller of the time that we've seen before, but, you know, executed with a certain amount of panache and raised up by James McAvoy's performance. It's not brilliant, but it's not bad. Uh, Martin Veert in Edinburgh. Uh, Simon, my daughter has been offended. When you corrected Why? Mark after he said yo... Yes, and you went, uh, young people don't say that no more, Miss Sophia, who is 15 years old, burst out, I say yo all the time, it's my standard greeting. Yo. Um, Sean in Kilburn, I'm 20, yo is still common parlance. Among my fellow youths. <laughs> OK. Well, I stand corrected by at least Miss Sophie. But you use and... hey, don't you? Well, hey, hey. yeah. Absolutely. You said that when you ring up. It's really bizarre. I answer the phone and you go, hey. I think this is because Friends has been watched in my house 24 hours a day. For is it a Friends ten. thing? I think it is. that you, When you go, you don't say hi. You just go walk in and go, hey. So I think I think I think it's probably Friends, but you know maybe that dates me. Maybe the youths aren't watching Friends. Hey, always sounds to me like you used to go. Hey, meet the gang, cause the boys are here. No, that I think that puts it today. as part of it ain't half hot mum, which I don't think it was particularly because they don't rerun on television anymore. Uh, on the subject of Split, uh, which you were reviewing just before the news, Tom Edwards. Yes, uh, I know that so many listeners will be anxious to know if. Uh, M. Night Shyamalan's latest offering is any good or if it's just another last airbender. 
Well, I, for one, can, can reveal this that perhaps surprisingly, it's a great film. I really enjoyed watching it. More importantly, M. Night is back on form. James McAvoy plays each of his roles excellently. He's chilling, calm and calculating as both Dennis and Patricia, and he delivers a great deal of dark humour as nine-year-old Hedvig, or Hedwig even. Plus, I enjoyed seeing... Uh, uh, Anya Taylor-Joy again, having been impressed by her in The Witch. The story is fascinating, imaginative, and Shyamalan's direction is admirable. Keeping the characters' heads and shoulders in shot and having them look directly towards the audience, heightening the tension. Split is never boring and a refreshing return to form. Uh, and Richard in Aberdeen. Uh, I had the misfortune this morning of seeing Split. I was unaware it was a Shalman film, and when his name flashed up during the opening titles, my expectations were somewhat lowered. <laughs> Unfortunately, they weren't lowered enough. enough. What a terrible film. <laughs> I'm not someone who walks out of screenings. I'll normally stick it out to the bitter end, no matter how bad the film is, but I came very close. It's not because there was anything particularly offensive about the film, not even another idiotic representation of mental illness. It was mainly because I was completely bored. For a kidnapped thriller, there seemed to be no... No tension whatsoever. Two of the kidnapped victims just seemed to descend into screaming stereotypes and I didn't find James McAvoy's character at all scary. I didn't walk out, but I was out of my seat and on my way out as soon as the end titles started. Tinkety-tonk and down with the Nazis, another... It is an, it's an interesting thing. I mean, it says some of it is very badly written and some of it is... I don't think it's brilliantly directed. Um, and certainly in terms of an, an actual depiction of a mental illness, well, it isn't. It's a movie depiction of a, of, you know, of a movie trope. It is... It, 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 that's, that's what it is. It's complete nonsense. Um, so it's complete nonsense. It's badly written and in places badly directed. Yes, but there is, you know... As I said, if you went seeing it just thinking it was an, an off-the-peg B-movie from the William Castle stable, you'd think, well, it's kind of, you know, past the time. I don't know what the William Castle stable... You know, just like. sort of schlocky exploitation movies or... I mean, the high watermark of this genre for me is the ninth configuration, um, you know, which is which is marvellous. And the low watermark of it... Well, Rudsuckers, rug suckers from Mars. No, but that's not that's not that that's not a that kind of movie. But isn't um, it? What, what kind of movie is that? It, that's just an unspeakable kind of oh, movie. Okay. That is the worst film ever made. TV that. movie of the week. Oh yes. By the way, because yeah, um, lots lots to fit in before four. James Gordon says. Yeah. Okay, so I adored the way way back. So ninety nine percent of weeks it would be that, but any list which includes the Muppets take Manhattan rather gets taken over by default. Lee Davis has to be train spotting for me. This film, along with its soundtrack, defined my college student days. Practically everyone I knew had the poster, and the VHS and the compact disc. Uh, Douglas Hurd. Douglas Hurd. <laughs> choose life. Choose train spotting. <laughs> ah, fuzzy bear. <laughs> For younger listeners, he used to be foreign secretary <laughs> way back. Yes, that joke, copyright 19. <laughs> Spitting image. Shad uh, Sharafbaini, I think that is. I hope I got that right, Shad. I'm torn between train spotting Black Swan and Grand Budapest Hotel. Train spotting just edges it for me. Uh, uh, Lauren Rose, I think Mark will pick Grand Budapest Hotel. My choice is Jumanji, my all time favourite live action family film. Every actor in the film is note perfect, and I think the ending is wonderfully moving. Any other week, I'd have picked Train Spotting, but Jumanji is just a great film. What is our TV movie of the week? 
I'm going for I Know Where I'm Going, which is on BBC Two at 8.30am on Saturday the 21st. 8.30am? Um, AM? In the morning? No one watches films at 8.30 in the morning. That's what it says, 8.30am, but I want... That can't be right. Well, I'm, I, this, the list here says I Know Where I'm Going, Michael Powell, when he, you know, it's the, the Powell and Pressburger film, uh, 8.30am, and they've written AM. They now write it out like this for me because I'm basically... Thick. <laughs> We don't say thick anymore. What do we say? We say... Challenging? (laughs) Challenging. I'm basically challenging, yes. I know where I'm going, 8.30am, which is a Powell and Pressburger film, which, of course, there is a connection between uh, Powell and Pressburger and Train Spotting. If anybody can uh, get that connection to us before the end of the show, I'll read it out. There's a very, very firm connection between Powell and Pressburger and Train Spotting. And it's just a wonderful film. It's a really, really fantastic piece of work from uh, 1945. Uh, And if you've never seen it before, then you have to see it because it will just, you know... I mean, all the Powell and Pressburger back catalogue is is worth seeing. But if you have seen it before, watch it again. Even if it is 8.45 in the morning, it's a lovely, 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 great piece of work and uh, just timeless. Timeless. All right, so uh, there is other stuff that is uh, brand new this week, including... uh, Dev Patel. Including, well, Dev Patel's not new. No, he's not Dev new Patel. and he's not the name of the movie. No. He was on the show. Lion stars in Dev Patel. Yeah, no. So uh, Dev Patel stars in Lion, who was on the, on the show a couple of weeks ago um, when we weren't on. So it sort of doesn't exist in my mind, but I know it was very nice that Dev Yeah, Patel Sanjeev uh, interviewed him. And it yes, was very, Sanjeev very does an extraordinary job. It was Ben, I think. Anyway. I beg your pardon. I'm so sorry. It was Ben Bailey-Smith. Of course it was. Although Sanjeev is also fine. Yeah, exactly right. So they'll have to have a fight at some point for for who's who's best. I'd pay to because now that I've thrown that up in the air, that's the thing. Okay, Um, now you put me off. Okay, so uh, lion, lion, Dev Patel, true story, and one of those kind of proofs that truth really is stranger than fiction. um, Of a young boy who, in 1986 in Kandahar. was uh, with his brother, ended up at a train station, got separated from his brother in the middle of the night, got onto a train because he was looking for somewhere to to warm up, and the train then pulled away from the station and he couldn't get off it for 1,600 kilometres. At the end of the train journey, which lasted through days and nights, he ended up in Calcutta, where he was unable to speak the language, didn't know how to explain where he had come from, didn't even know the proper name of the place from whence he had come. Ended up effectively being taken to the police and placed in care, and then adopted by foster parents in um, uh, adopted by parents in uh, in Australia, and then raised in Australia, and uh, you know uh, brought up miles and miles away f- from his home. We then move forward in the film to Dev Patel, who is now the, 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 the grown-up Saru, who, after having a Proustian moment with a sweet uh, Indian food, is suddenly taken back into a reverie about the home that he lost all those years ago and suddenly becomes completely overwhelmed by a desire to find where he came from and to find the home that he lost all that time back. Hello, I'm Swamina. Uh, hello, I'm John. This is Sue. Hello there. Hello. Yeah, that's for you. Good on the plane? Yeah, good? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> 
So David Wenham and Nicole Kidman as uh, the adoptive parents of Saru, played as a child by Sonny Poir, who is absolutely brilliant. I mean, as a child, the performance of the the the, the young say is, is astonishing. And in fact, it'll be maybe one of the images that you take away from from the film is is yeah. that little boy. Yeah, absolutely. And then later on, by Dev Patel as the young man who then becomes completely overwhelmed by this need to find out where he came from, but absolutely unable to do so because the place in which he was picked up by the authorities was so far away from where he came from, and there is no record of it. That you know, how does one even begin? And also, should one begin and should one, you know, search for one's roots? I think the thing about this film is, which you've seen as well, um, firstly, it's an extraordinary tale. And I think it's really, really well told. I found it, I didn't know anything about the story when I first started watching it. I know it is a true story. And obviously, I'm. you can find out about the true story if you want to in advance. From my point of view, I didn't know it the first time around. But then I saw it again, second time around, because I liked it so much. And even knowing exactly how the story pans out, I found it every bit as emotional as I did before. And the, the reasons are threefold. Firstly, the early sections with the young child are really brilliantly done. There's a Spielbergian element to the the frame of the young boy being lost amidst this sort of landscape of the, the inhospitable rail yards, the water towers, the buildings. I mean, it's a very Spielbergian thing that the child is down here and it's almost like this kind of, you know, strange Blade Runner-y landscape in which he's lost. Second thing is, Dev Patel is a fantastically uh, versatile and talented actor and does a really good job, not only of convincing you that he is that same character, but also of convincing you that his conflict about his, uh, his fairly happy home life and his then desire later on, his you know, unstoppable desire to to find his roots those two things are you know that what happens is those two things start to clash and they start to tear him apart and he does a very very good job of portraying the pain of being sort of torn apart by it and the third thing is that the film which has to deal with complex issues such as people looking things up on google earth which let's face it is not cinematic manages to not be the film that you think it might be. I mean, I've heard people talk about it as it's a film about people looking things up on Google Earth, and no, it isn't. It really isn't. What it does is it manages to tell its story, which is necessarily segmented, but tell it in a way which is completely, um, you know, emotionally coherent. And it's a great performance by Dev Patel. Uh, Rooney Mara making the best of a, of a role which is essentially sidelined as his sort of soulmate who is there to support him, but actually when, when you know, things really start to fall apart, has to some extent to, to stand to one side. And Nicole Kidman giving, I mean, for my money, one of the best performances she's given in a really, really long time as, uh, as Surrey's adoptive mother, who has her own reasons, her own absolutely strong and, you know, convictions and reasons for the adoption, but is also sort of torn by the stresses of the circumstance in which she finds herself. And I thought it was a really pro a properly intelligent performance by Kidman, who managed to convey both pain and, much more complicatedly, love as a gesture. And, you know, there are times when I think Nicole Kidman on, on screen has been very, very self-conscious and very, very much, you know, Nicole Kidman. And I thought in this, she lost herself totally in the performance. She became that character. And um, 
as I said, I've seen it twice. And at both times I was in floods of tears. And I think it's not just to do with being a, a parent and that thing about, I mean, the cinematic depiction of the child lost in the big world. You know, it makes you think of AI. It makes you think of, you know, as I said, the Spielbergian thing. But he looks, he looks incredibly lost because yeah. he is so small. I, I mean, he's like five, six years old. Yeah, and it's, and it's, but it's brilliant, isn't it? I mean, it is absolutely brilliantly done, that stuff. And then it does make sense, absolutely, when it does with, with, with uh, Dev Patel, the absolutely, sta- you know, you believe that that is that same character who, in his mind, keeps being drawn back to this event that happened so far in the past, 20 years ago in the past, and he's and yet still it's there and real for him. Yes, and and I know nobody will, but stay for the titles. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Gavin Regnart in Birmingham. Did I, you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, ab- absolutely. Saw Lion last week. Was very impressed. My gut was wrenched and my heart was warmed at appropriate times. And the coda rounded off the story satisfyingly. But what I really want to highlight is the incredible performance of Sonny Paywar as young Saru. Yeah. He was totally captivating, first charming and funny, then profoundly sad and fearful. I completely believed in him and I found myself walking trepidatiously in his shoes as he made his transition to a new life in Australia. I think the power of Sonny's performance in the first part of the film helped me forgive a slightly less satisfying second half. I think the problem there was was the emotional jigsaw of adult Saru's relationships with his loved ones wasn't quite completed, so we could imagine what the full picture would look like, but the missing pieces took the edge of what might be, what otherwise might have been a masterpiece. Um, Zakia, uh, MNG, MSC, GMICE. Though GMICE sounds like an Ottoan follow-up to DISCO. (laughs) Slightly more profound than that. I attended a screening of Lion earlier this evening. Um, it was good, not brilliant. I had high expectations. It turned out to be a solid, average movie. The cinematography was a visual treat. The acting was generally good. The writing, however, let the movie down. Oh, really? There were some heartfelt, honest and raw moments, such as the family dinner and the scene in which they discuss how adopted children bring their past with them. Other parts felt contrived and overplayed. The best thing about the movie was Sonny Paywar, who was just brilliant. Yeah. I'm a relatively new listener, but I've been making my way through the last couple of years' worth of podcasts. Thank you for making my evenings that much wittier anyway thank you Zakia uh, you, you liked it right yes and I, I went with Sophie who works on the show and she cried all the way through as indeed she knew she would yeah right from start did you cry but no because you never cry because you're heartless yes and I have standards so well I kind of I, I have think, standards what I does think that mean also I I'm a critic that's my job to have standards well you need to just toughen up okay anyway I think it was be- probably because I sort of guessed, mo- I think most of the story is known, and because you know it's a true story, you might make certain suppositions based on based on that. But I thought it was beautifully shot, okay. and and I agree with the correspondence about Sunny Paywo, who those, those that first half of the of the film where I, often you see children lost, but there may be eight or nine or ten. This boy, however old he really is, yeah. is a, like a five year old lost. Did you not think that Dev Patel powerful. was great yes. at portraying that? You know that the the angst of the character who has a happy and a loving home and yet is still you know still torn about his past we yes absolutely we started yeah. the show and i'm aware we just have a few minutes left uh, with someone who sat next to you when you went to see a film oh yes 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 so we just need to allow a little time for that five past nine a.m this morning i went to see xxx because it's more like big x small x uh, the return of xander cage uh, I have to confess that uh, Xander Cage returning is is all fine. I I hadn't spent much time worrying. 
I wonder whatever happened to Xander Cage, you know, after he been priced himself out of the market. But uh, obviously, I, I, I caught up with uh, with the stuff, and it turns out it's more of the same. Here's a clip. Xander Cage. This is crazy. I was at Coachella, and Guns N' Roses got back together, but this is way cooler. Breathe. Take your time. I know mouth-to-mouth if necessary. (laughs) Wow. Clearage worked closely with Gibbons. She'll handle support for the operation. And I bet a guy like you needs a lot of support. What are you, like 220, 230? Be honest, 250 is like the hard max for my swing. (laughs) Oh, come on. I'm kidding. It's not like I have a safe word or anything. It's kumquat. So a weird thing. So the plot is um, somebody has developed a device called Pandora's Box, which causes satellites to fall out of the sky. And now the XX, you know, the XXX team have to uh, reassemble in order to uh, go find out who they're doing. And they're doing this under the uh, tutelage of Tony Collette, who, you know, the suit, the sinister suit, who says that we have to go and do this because this thing is bad. So basically what they do is they round up a team that he can work with. And, and every single member of the team is, they are they're basically, they've got superheroes, but then but without actually superpowers. And on the downside, I don't like the, the Vin Diesel Xander Cage character. I just think it's incredibly self-aggrandizing and self-congratulatory. I think the endless endless gags about how fantastically attractive he is to absolutely everybody and how sexy he finds himself is funny because I just think that he's, he comes across as a dork. Um, uh, on the other hand, if you compare that with, for example, someone like you know Donnie Yen and you know watching the way that some of the other performers attempt to make the most of an incredibly creaky script, um, there are certain pleasures to be had. However, it is lunking and bulky and it is pouty within an inch of its life it is pouty shooty runny jumpy bulky and rather boring and film of the week oh lion oh this is nice there's a little ditty they're singing in the city especially when they've been on the gin or the now she gets a bit more cockney if you've got the patience your own imaginations will tell you just exactly what you want to hear papa papa that's how it goes What a great soundtrack this was, didn't you think? Yeah, we have to talk. It's obligatory. Okay, fine. When they go oom pa 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 pa. Another verse and chorus. 1968, Shani Wallace is Nancy. Link arms with the person next to you. One, two, three. What is the cause of his red shiny nose? Well, you don't ask. <laughs> it's one of those soundtracks where you I don't like musicals, I don't like musicals, but I do like... I do like that, yeah. There you go, that's the way I like I'm just going to do some correspondence that we ran out of time for. Tim and Leeds, because we were talking about Triple X. Yes. XXX. Uh, the original XXX was a guilty pleasure with some inventive stunts, fun dialogue and a hero to root for. So I was quite looking forward to some brain-in-neutral fun with the return of Xander Cage. I was wrong. It's utterly horrible. It makes no sense. It's got a nasty misogynist streak and an unhealthy obsession with handguns. Worst, there is supposed 
There's a supposed funny line that is utterly misjudged and offensive. I don't know how anyone could believe this was a good idea. It leaves the worst taste in the mouth possible. Avoid, avoid, avoid. Jeff Challenger on the Lion movie, maybe. Which is your movie of the week? It is my movie of the week. You were surprised. Well, I thought maybe Jackie would be considered more significant. I think Jackie probably is more significant, but I like Lion. And I just, at the last minute, did that thing about going, I'm going to go with Lion. Jeff Challenger says, maybe it's because I'm seeing it on holiday in Australia, or maybe I'm a sucker for an emotional true story, but Lion was a delight. We saw the film at the Bellina Fair Cinema just south of Byron Bay. Uh, on a sample of one, Australian moviegoers are better behaved than British ones. <laughs> really? Advertising and trailers are a lot less winded. The film is something Australia should be proud of. Sonny Paywa as young Saru is jaw-droppingly impressive yeah, and in really some is. ways outshines Dev Patel, whose London accent sometimes sneaks through. Echoes of Slumdog are everywhere. Tasmania looks lovely. And as ever with these things, I cried like a little girl at two to three places in the film, especially in the credits. Even the tickets were cheaper than in the UK. Um, yeah. Now, uh, before we move on to other matters, yes, um, I just need to find this Lost in London thing because okay. you didn't, you didn't see that, did you? No, I didn't. No. So explain to everyone what it is. Okay. So uh, Woody Harrel, Woody, Woody Harrelson, <laughs> well done. Him made his directorial debut, uh, and it wasn't really in the easiest way because he made a live movie. Have you ever heard of this happening? Where you actually because there have been live TV like. The Bill did a live uh, episode. Coronation Street did a yeah. live episode. Has there ever been a live movie? I'm sure there has, but I can't think of one off the top of my head. It was broadcast live in... I mean, there's live television broadcasts. Like, for example, they did they did the whole of uh, Quatermass and the Pit as a live mm. broadcast. But sorry, Karen. Yeah. <laughs> 500 were. cinemas in the US and just one in the UK. Uh, which was Picture House Central in Piccadilly. Anyway, Lost in London, shot in a single unbroken 100-minute take, 14 locations, two black cabs, one police car, a VW camper van. The cast included Willie Nelson and Owen Wilson. And uh, some of you have seen it. Here's Michael Barrett in Wandsworth. I don't know if you're going to be covering Lost in London on the show, but you should for three reasons. First, because it was a first. Secondly, because it's Woody Harrelson's directorial debut. And third, because it happened right on our doorstep in London. 2am this morning, I descended to the only cinema in England showing what was billed as the first film ever to be shown. There was only one, only one cinema showing it? Just okay. the one. Fine, fine, fine. Entirely in one take, while simultaneously being broadcast live into cinemas across the globe. Obviously aimed more at the US market due to its silly o'clock start time here. There was still a huge, excited crowd gathered to see if Woody would be able to pull it off, and he did not disappoint. A comedy based on the true story of Woody's worst night of my life. There were plenty of laugh-out-loud moments, most noticeably when Owen Wilson shows up, and a couple of heart-in-mouth moments when you're not quite sure if this is happening on screen, whether it's supposed to be happening or not. But most of all, the pure technicality of it, from the 14 different locations around London, which had to be driven into in real time, to the 300 extras and 300 crew members, and all with just one camera. The whole thing went off pretty much without a hitch. I can't see this becoming a regular new filmmaking formula Woody himself said if anyone was thinking of doing it Don't. he'd immediately talk <laughs> out of it but it was certainly a fun and adrenaline fueled ride which will long remain with me I can't imagine lots of people actually thinking there's a good idea No, but clearly if you're going to be the first to do it there's the yeah, good for him good for him for doing it so this is the first then is it we do, we do think that there, there isn't a precedent never it. happened before here's, right. here's, here's a clip of Woody from the film a few years back in London, I had a most unhappy experience and I decided that I would write a comedy about it. Every friend I have told me this is a terrible idea, it's going to be a failure, which is how I knew I was on to something. 
The great Carl Walenda once said, all life is on the wire and all else is waiting. Now, I'm not sure how long he said that before he plunged to his death, but I want you to join me. And now it might end up great. It might end up a disaster, but I guarantee you it will be worth watching. Well, respect to him. Yeah, exactly. And the reviews that I saw this morning seemed to think give it a big thumbs up. There were a couple of... Uh, there great, was, there was one moment where an actor walked off shot without realising that he still had some more lines to do. Oh, really? And it might be that the DVD is going gonna, is gonna to repay close attention. But anyway, uh, and the exchange between uh, Woody and Owen Wilson, lots of people have said was really, really fun. OK, great. So respect to them. Good. Well but, done for doing it. But we weren't there at two No, I was at the morning. train spotting uh, screening. Because you're hardcore. I am hardcore. Because so, you're, uh, you're not hardcore unless you live hardcore. And the legend of the band is way hardcore. We we watched that again the other day. Isn't it great? School of Rock. Isn't it just great? Compulsory family. It's probably a, the family film. Yeah. If we were going to gather and sit around and do anything one It would be day, School of Rock. It would probably be School of it Rock. It is lovely, isn't it? I really love it. Um, so unless you've got any other business, I'm going to do DVD of the week. No, I'm in good shape. Thank you. Okay. Yes, do, do that. Yeah. All right. Here we go then. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you've gone off in a whole different area now of strangeness. He who fights with monsters should be careful lest he thereby become a monster, and if thou gaze long into an abyss, the abyss will also gaze into thee. The words of German philosopher, cultural critic, poet, philologist, and all-time fun sponge, Friedrich Nietzsche. As you well know. There's nothing Nietzsche couldn't teach you about the raising of the wrist. Crikey, Friedrich, chill out and stick a DVD on because there are some crackers out on Monday. What's your choice and what will Mark choose? John Mills, but not that one, says. Obviously, the 19th coolest person in Cornwall will pick Under the Shadow, as that was one of his films of last year. I, though, have had The Magnificent Seven on pre-order since the day I saw it at the cinema, a great modern-day Western. Of course, by pre-order, you just mean... I ordered, ordered it, yes. <laughs> Lee Patton, Mark will pick Fear of a Tablecloth, a.k.a. Under the Whelming, sorry, Under the Shadow, which, after his glowing recommendation, is the single sake. biggest disappointment I've experienced so far in 2017, which, of course, is so old. Yeah, it's like, you know, so last week. Adrian Thompson, in this week of all weeks, Southside with you, looks like the perfect movie to relax to and remember the good times. Mark will probably go for... Under the Shadow. Adam Grossman, Captain Fantastic for me, an incredibly moving story of a family's love for each other despite the challenges of being different, growing up and growing apart. And uh, Rory McCann, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia is Peckinpah's best, or at least his most emotionally affecting film. Elsa is great too. Uh, we're going to go for all of those movies, but which is DVDs? Which is Mark's <laughs> choice of DVD of the week? Under the Shadow. I mean, you know, evidently, because it's just fantastic, and I will... Underwhelming. Under, it's, that's just cheap, you know. <laughs> so? Yeah, no, exactly, when has that ever stopped us? No, it's fantastic. It's a really brilliant movie. It's brilliantly written and directed by Babak Anvary. It's a terrific ghost story, or story of gin, spirit of the air, which refers to Guillermo del Toro's Devil's Backbone, has a touch of Polanski and, you know, The Tenant and perhaps Rosemary's Baby, but is also very, very distinctively a film all of its own flavour, and I thought it was wonderful. I thought it was really, really wonderful, and I loved it. Did you like Did you like it quite a lot? I did like it quite a lot. It was my favourite film of last year, if you remember. Well, Mark, thank you so much for being here today. That's fine. I've enjoyed it. And I think we've been on our best behaviour. We have.
miso slightly less than you. Yeah. Which is a so we misbehave just at the very end. Okay. Okay. No, no, because then the twittery birds will have to turn up. Will they? But you've been very, very good. So don't spoil it now. Okay. So just in general, Simon, how's today worked out for you? Well, today's been quite interesting. Uh, and Michael McConaughey, I interviewed this morning. Michael McConaughey? Oh, sorry. And him. Well, he was in the next room. <laughs> was he? Yeah, there's not he said, one of them, you know. <laughs> he doesn't get any work anymore now that Matthew gets it all. Yeah, that's true. Okay. He hates him. He Does really, he? really, really So hates how was Michael McConaughey? So Michael McConaughey was quite good. Maybe I interviewed the wrong guy. Yeah, so, so <laughs> MM was was fun. Working with you is always a treat. Always but a treat. of course, at five o'clock yeah. on, uh, on Friday... It, that, that's the All moment. requests Friday. All requests Friday. Where we, and I think this week we might have a whole bunch of new listeners. Why is that? On digital and online. This is BBC Radio 5 Live. bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live.